you pompous, stuck-up, snot-nosed, English, giant, twerp, scumbag, fuck-faced, dickhead, asshole. How very interesting. You're a true vulgarian, aren't you? You're the vulgarian, you fuck! Now apologize! Uh, welcome to Pivotal Film. Um, my name is Tom Nolan. And this is Mario Ponzio. And uh, this is a new podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking about movies, uh, specifically our 100 favorite movies um, of all time for Except us. This episode is 101 to 105. Right. Because we're real assholes. We are super assholes. And you might be asking yourself, well, what makes us experts on film? And we can kind of tell you to go fuck yourself. But, yeah. you know, we won't say that. We'll just say that, you know, we've are people who have watched a lot of movies, maybe too many movies, abandoning other chores and, you know, things that we have in our life to uh, to watch film, and now we're going to talk about it. And I think that's the important thing to mention to people, is that, like, we're not saying these are the 100 best movies of all time. Oh, no. Like, you know, this is it. Um, these are ours. These are our favorite movies. Um, you know, we're going to go 100, you know, 99, 98, maybe, no, follow that, maybe 97. Um and the twist our, is we're going to end on two. <laughs> the twist is that there's going to be a 1A and 1B because we're cowards. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're not, we're not trying to smoosh anything together that looks um, similar or that like, belongs to a similar category of movies. We're, just gonna, we're not specifically comparing them, whose 100 is better than um, someone else's 100. There's no winner here. Just talking about movies. There, wait, there isn't? No. This what is, am I doing here? This is not the World Cup of podcasts. Ah, damn. This is not the... And that's timely if you're listening to this live. <laughs> I think that only applies to your roommate. <laughs> um, so, along with talking about movies, uh, we're going to be drinking some beers. We are. Every episode, we're going to drink a new, um, hopefully local, as, you know, as local as we can get beer. Um, this one's beer. pretty local. This one's, where is this from? This, what, is, what is, this is Front Mario? Porch Brewing. Uh, there are specifically into sours, and this is a sour IPA called Finger Guns. It is a 5.6%, and if you look at the cover, it kind of looks like a finger ejaculating. It does. It is certainly a finger gun. It actually looks a lot like um, one of those cartoons from a Monty Python movie. Yeah, uh, if that, if that, but there's, if that, that cartoon was, was definitely jacking off its Are those finger. ghosts, though? Uh, ghost semen, maybe? Who knows? I actually think ghost semen is a fairly accurate representation of what that can looks like. I believe that was also Sid Vicious's first band. Ghost semen. I think this also cements that we're not going to get free beer from Front Porch Brewing (laughs) because we said that their can looks like a gun, a finger gun ejaculating ghost semen. I mean, maybe that's what they're going for. Anyways, hopefully the beer doesn't taste like ghost semen. We should probably stop talking about the beer and maybe try the beer. This is the first time Tom has ever had this beer. Yes, and I'm not like a sour IPA guy. Have you ever had a sour IPA? Yeah, I had um, at uh, Firehouse 12 once. I had Ooh, a, the any sloop. beer from Firehouse 12 was bad. Well, it was. It was we will the, also not take sponsorship from Firehouse 12. Oh wait, Firehouse 12, the bar. The bar, yeah, not the brewery. I was thinking Firestone Walker, which oh. is which is a bad brewery. 
I've, where is that from? That's also in Connecticut. So yeah, well, uh, we're not going to get anything from really. there. But Firehouse Twelve, yeah, I had a Sloop um, Sloop Sour IPA. This is actually much better than that one. Yeah, well, this is competently made beer. I think it's um, actually one of the better sour sweet. IPAs. Had yeah, yeah, no, no, it starts out sweet. It's kind of like a melony, like you get from an IPA, but it's got that bite to it. In the end. Did you say melony? No, melony. Yeah, there's a little. I guess I'm getting a melon. <laughs> That. As you could tell, we're not only not movie experts, we're also not beer experts. Well, one of us isn't a beer expert, for sure. Um, yeah, you could tell me that Miller High Life had some melony hints, and I would be like, hmm, all right. Oh, no, definitely. I, I, get, I get a lot of malt forwardness on Miller High Life. Is that, that, that's not melon, though. The malt melon? Anything is melon if you think hard enough. Um, so I think to start license, out, maybe, lesson. you know, before we get into the 105, the 101, we talk about movies we've seen recently, because that's what these things sort of do. Well, yeah, we want to keep it a little bit relevant. Um, so, so Tom, you've been seeing anything recently? No, you funny you should ask, Mario. <laughs> it's almost like we set this up. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like we have a piece of paper with an order in front of us. I and, know. Blocks. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think we both saw recently um, First Reformed, Paul, Paul Schrader's... Um, I guess it came out in March. Oh, Did yeah, just around then. I mean, in New Haven. I feel like it's where been, we are. It just came out. Yeah, it's last been month rolling out here and there. Um, so it stars Ethan Hawke and Amanda Seyfried. And so, so Ethan Hawke is a uh, is a priest preacher um, uh, at First Reformed Church in New York, New York. And um, when we meet him, he seems to be having some kind of crisis of just faith. A- crisis of faith as you know just your typical existential crisis that that paul schrader seems to love in everything but we're not gonna talk about everything else because right know. yeah yeah where well, it's no reason to i mean i feel like there's taxi driver elements towards the end of the thing but i feel like they're they're on purpose there's taxi driver elements in everything after 1980 about a <laughs> yeah. white male um so he's confronted by one of his parishioners um amanda seyfried whose husband got out of jail in canada he's uh, an eco-terrorist and is uh, considering blowing up something with a, a, a suicide vest. Um, as, as one would do when they're an eco-terrorist. I think, that, yeah, that's how eco-terrorism works. Yeah, I, um, one thing leads to... I've an, seen Fern Gully. <laughs> Does that happen in Fern Gully? I wish. I thought, I thought that was Legends of Gahul. <laughs> um, so he... Um, what does he do? I mean, nothing. It's hard to explain this movie I, I in really, terms of like plot points. I really don't think like the plot matters in the sense of watching it, but you know, talking about it and discussing it, like we're going to do here, doesn't matter, right? So much. It's um, some stuff happens. It's a yeah. drama. It's a. It's you know. It's heavy. It's, I mean, it's a thinker. Um, to spoil something, there's a pretty great post headshot in that film. I've admit. And there's good as, as a person who who will be bringing up a lot makeup effects in terms of gore. I was pretty impressed with Paul Schrader. Yeah, that. Um, I think that's one of the things that I liked most because I really liked the movie. You liked the movie. I don't know, and I was kind of hoping this would would. Uh, All right, would so help me, let's convince. Would help me unspool my opinion, <laughs> unfurl it. Let's convince. Uh, let's help Mario unfurl his opinion. Yeah, we'll take colors at one eight hundred. Um. Yeah, so one of the things I liked about the movie is that there's... I don't want to say it's like a David Cronenberg no, movie. No, no, I wouldn't say that at all. But there's interesting... Like, the, you know, 
when they after the guy shoots himself. Um, it's pretty gory. Like how visceral it is. Yeah, yeah. I would say. And it's, and it's real. He doesn't he doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't skimp on anything. He just shows it. He's bravely, I don't know if I want to say bravely, but he's interestingly decided on those moments to have no soundtrack. A lot of natural sounds. Um, they're long moments. I mean, this, especially well, in these, especially in, you know, Ant-Man just came out and all this other stuff. In real movie, you know, he's making a real movie. And... To me, um, the visceralness was, was, was very humanistic, and that's, I think, what he was going to try to do with a lot of it. I mean, a lot of critics kind of, like, said it's an environmental allegory, and I think that's, frankly, bullshit. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's there. It plays a role in the humanistic element of it, but I think just going with the gore and, and you know, the ending um, with elements of body horror are kind of like, I don't want to say slapstick necessarily, but the ending kind of... Well, it's body horror with flying, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, um, but, well, I mean, the flying works Yeah, in terms of a... what he's trying to do and what he's trying to um, to represent. I think there's, I think the metaphor is so solid throughout the movie that you can kind of get away with flying. Well, I think, I think he tries to do a bit of, like, magic realism or whatever, blending with humanism. Um, and I don't know if he's so successful with that. I think... Yeah, we he, can... he tries to meld a lot of things to make ultimately the point of an existential person trying to punish himself. And that's what I get from it. Yeah. That's what I personally get from it is like Ethan Hawke's character. And... Yeah, I don't know how much of that. I didn't, I didn't um, read it as um, magical realism when I was, when I was watching I, it. I don't think necessarily like it's heavily supposed to be magical realism. Um, I think he just tries to go into those elements for some reason, and I'm not sure exactly what those reasons are. But to kind of go back, I, it's definitely a film about you know, punishment, um, Cedric the Entertainer's uh, pastor, brr, 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 pastor... Pastor the Entertainer? Yeah, his pastor Jeffers, you know, is, is kind of teaching that prosperity gospel. Um, you know, he's got the mega church. He's, he's got that, that very kind of God will give you everything, and Toller is hanging on to that kind of New England style Jonathan Edwards fire and brimstone. Yeah, um, and I think that kind of goes back to spoilers: his son being sent off to war and dying. And so when he went after the Mary's husband kills herself, Michael, um, he, he he then clings on to the environmental thing, and I think that's where people kind of think it's an environmental allegory, but to me, it's just a man constantly trying to find new ways of torturing himself. Well, see, I kind of read it a different way. I think the new ways is interesting and the torture definitely comes in at the end. Um, I really saw it as um, a film about faith and not so much faith in like religion, but like a man who's has no faith in religion and is looking for faith in something else. And so he dumps all of his faith into, um, this eco-terrorism idea, he kind of seems to be, um, you know, just searching for an identity. I mean, they talk a lot about, um, and he's, you know, he's reading Thomas Merton books um, uh, that, you know, and he, you know, uh, Paul Schrader's really careful to show you, like, um, images of his house where it's just a bare room with a chair in it. Um, he doesn't have many possessions. He doesn't have many um um, parishioners in his church, which I didn't he know seems, if that was going for like the monkish elements, or that's that was going for was, the self-punishment again. Still, like that self-flagellation, like and I think that's metaphorical pa- self-flagellation, right? And I think that's part of it. Um, is that he's just, you know, this is what he has to do. Um, this is what he has to do to keep his faith, and 
I'm not sure how real his faith is when we meet him. I think it's flagging, which is why, like, when he's talking to Michael, Michael um, he says that he was exhilarated, like, with the inter the exchange of ideas that had nothing to do with um, church, like, the function of the church as much as it did the function of um, belief it within a person. And, like, intellectual stimulation, obviously. Sure. Like, and because, like, all of Toll's arguments kind of echoes something hollow like like his words ring true yep. to the faith but it's a man obviously not necessarily believing in it and when he starts following like the eco-terrorism aspect um after michael's death i kind of think he also doesn't necessarily believe in it it's just he's looking for that kind of new high which to obsess over and which to punish himself over and which to blame the world for everything right well i think it's um yeah that's an interesting point especially in the sense that he um you know, when he quotes, you know, Bible verse for a while, he's just quoting Bible verse, but then he starts quoting, like, eco-terrorism facts. Yeah, yeah. Like, in the same exact way that he would quote a Bible verse, and Cedric the Entertainer actually kind of comes at him with some, you know, some Bible verses to combat the eco-terrorism stuff. I really wish Cedric the Entertainer listens to this and is like, my name's fucking this. <laughs> Money. I'm not going to do a Cedric the Entertainer impression, although yeah. I really want to. <laughs> we, we don't want to. Um, bury ourselves in the zero episode but it's um i found it really 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 powerful like like super powerful and the idea that he's <clears throat> like you talked about after his son's death um that he kind of doesn't know what to do with himself and he even says then that um you know reverend jeffers like found him and gave him his position i don't know what the circumstances behind finding him were um but it's not like he went out and like sought this thing. Like he was given this. I think you can see evidence of um, some of his non-belief in this, or not non-belief, but like the value that he specifically has in regards to religion when he's talking to the youth group, and that kid kind of starts attacking like the church, or you know, attacking his ver- um, Toller's version of what he thinks the church mm-hmm. is. Like he really needs this whole experience to conform to um, something very specific because he needs something very specific out of it. And when he's not getting it, the eco-terrorism kind of, you know, fills that void. And then when he doesn't get the chance to be an eco-terrorist, like he has nothing left. When he's, when he's kind of, he's recognized, I think, and I suppose we can, you know, the ending can be discussed for a long time. He's kind of recognized that he's lost everything. He doesn't have any faith in humans anymore. They've ruined the planet. He doesn't have any faith in God anymore. Because um, he doesn't know what that necessarily that means. And so he punishes himself in the best way possible. Oh, no. No, definitely. Wrapping yourself in barbed wire. and. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, when that happened, I was I sat up in my chair and just put my arms on the back of the other chair. I was just kind of staring, like, dumbfounded at the screen. Like, oh, my God, he's doing this. Yeah. Once again, great makeup effects on. Yeah. Just, like, the flesh being torn. But I also, mean, it's I mean, really, like... A nice rending of flesh there, and it's and it's ugly. Yeah, and, and that's exactly appropriate. And, and that's and that's like well crafted. I mean, that's that's exactly sure. like that kind of hits the point. I don't necessarily understand when Mary comes in afterwards. I don't understand. That I think at all. it's it's unnecessary. Right, it's going to be films we mention later on in this list and in these episodes that talk about great endings that are kind of ruined by five extra minutes. And I think this is kind of a movie that needed an uptick. Um, 
Did and it need it, an uptick, though? No, that felt like it needed an uptick. Oh, okay. Or that he thought it needed like an uptick? Like, that Schrader thought it needed an uptick. Like, some sort of, like, oh, maybe some sort of redemption, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, fuck that. You don't need that. No. I mean, this this is not a character. This is a self-destructive character. There's no arc to him that suggests he's going to do anything well, different. And I don't want to do, I don't want to be one of those guys who says kind of like, what if, where does this movie go from here? Oh yeah. But no, I, no, think no, the, no, I think the, I think the, I think the, the flaw the of the credits. ending is like, okay, so he was just in one place and now he's in a totally different place. Is it redemption or is it more destruction? I don't. Well, no. And that's, that's an interesting. I mean, he's making out with a, a pregnant lady. While like the camera spins Pregnant around the widow, and what's Pregnant what's widow. interesting too, is you know maybe once again that's that's him punishing himself again for that. Another thing he can kind of punish himself. He he lost faith in man, lost faith in God. But what's the punish? Like, what's the punishment though? Yeah, I don't know. I that's, that's I exactly, understand. Um, I understand what you mean. I, I, I want say, it to be a punishment too. I just don't know how it's. I don't know how it's a punishment. I, mean, I don't want to speculate too much because I hate when things do that. Um, but like punishment and the fact that like maybe he blames himself for not being there for Michael, blah, 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 led to her being at this part where she's a widowed pregnant lady. I mean, obviously her husband was a psychopath, but like just suicidal, not really homicidal in any way. It didn't seem like it. Yeah. I, I think it goes out of its way to say that, but, um, but now he can like punish himself by taking on the mantle of husband to a woman who's like lifey. Maybe help destroy sure. himself. I think that's an interesting take, also, and it kind of helps um, clarify some of my thinking about it in regards to the idea that if he's lost total, if he's lost total faith in humanity, then perhaps there's a moral. Mm-hmm. Maybe he perceives some kind of um, greater moral failing in himself by eating the face of a pregnant widow, versus. Not actually eating the face. I mean, we should, we should, we should <laughs> clarify that after, face. after talking about he, what else happens in this film. Gets, I mean, I wouldn't have been too surprised. He gets a good taste of her yeah. face um, instead of blowing somebody up. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Um, and is that something, is blowing, is he really looking for interior punishment more so than the outward expression of like, you know, who is he trying to punish? Is he trying to punish these people by killing them or is he trying to punish himself? And maybe he sees a more... Um, effective manner of punishing himself by giving himself over to this person he definitely shouldn't give himself over to instead of blowing up these people. And we're saying that because it's Amanda Seyfried, not because of the character. Well, I mean, let's talk about, let's talk real quick about um, performances. Ethan Hawke is fantastic. No, Ethan Hawke is the, the, the chair scene, the scene where he's debating with Michael and he, he has that like conversation about what, oh, that's the sour I pay there for you. Uh, what happened <laughs> With his Sneaks. with his son, yeah, um, you know I hate I hate to be like hyperbole here, but it's definitely kind of like if somebody like Daniel D. Lewis is actually retired, you can see somebody like him kind of taking on that mantle, and maybe not so psychotically, um, or you know just douchey because let's be honest, Daniel D. Lewis is douchey about it, but yeah, he he definitely kind of like encapsulates the character there and, and makes you believe everything that comes on after, and even though like sometimes he kind of just is Ethan Hawking his way through it. There's those moments, especially when he talks down to, um, I can't remember her name. It's not Cynthia. Whatever her name but is. the I, woman yeah. he's had the affair with, um, when he dresses her down. That's what, And that's the moment I would go to, too. Yeah. That he kind of really, he sells it. That's when you kind of know that he's not okay. Yeah, and that's that when you know, like. Things are kind of, like, turned for him. To the point where he, and that's, I mean, he says it afterwards when he's writing in his, in his diary, he's like, oh, I feel really good. He's like, I did, 
I did all the I quickly did all the tasks that I needed to do today. Yeah. But like the tasks that I needed to do that day are like to drink and write and just to bleed. Yeah, that's you know what I mean into the toilet. Like that's his tasks. Yeah, and, and that like it's a hundred percent a movie for me personally is carried by Ethan Hawke's performances because I think the actor who plays Michael don't know his name off the top of my head is fine. Um, he's serviceable. Um, but everyone else is. Well, I think Cedric the Entertainer is serviceable. Yeah, I guess. And he does he does the role of like benevolent like omnipresent preacher guy he reminds me kind of like well. a, a civil shepherd in, in like <laughs> no no just like like how she was serviceable like in, in the, ta- like he the rest has- of the podcast is now <laughs> devoted to you explaining how cedric the entertainer <laughs> and civil shepherd are related well just like you know like paul schrader always has those those actors in his films who are just okay, okay. Who, two are fine and sure. and he's fine he, amanda seafried is is awful like so. james dean in the, in the canyons well, no, james dean was was a master class in acting it's like him and Sasha Gray and the girlfriend experience. The girlfriend experience is Steven Soderbergh, though. Yeah, I know, I know, Steven Soderbergh. But just oh, you just I just wanted to name other, other yeah. adult film stars. Um, who, yeah, Amanda Seyfried was terrible. Yeah, no, no, definitely. unless she was supposed to be terrible, and I wasn't ever sure exactly which one she was supposed to I be. Don't, I don't know why she would have to be terrible. I just didn't understand. Like, and I don't want to sound too like film nerdy here. I didn't understand what her motives. We don't even have film degrees. <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand what her like motives were for anything. Like, what was the point? I didn't just her attitude through the whole thing. She was like scared, but also kind of well, like um, like apathetic. Yeah, no, no. So she... Throughout, like, and so she wanted him to die. And did she want Ethan Hawke to like make out with her the whole time? Because I kind of. Got the impression she did and she didn't. Like, if they weren't going to make out during the flying scene, why would he wait till the end? Like, why would she wait till the end to proposition herself to him like that well, when she laid see, on top of a, him? You see a bleeding Ethan Hawke and it's done. Well, and that's – so, I mean, <laughs> not to bring too much, like, you know, is it – how much of it is real – but like, and not to you know belabor too much the point of um, you know continuity in cinema, but he's covered in barbed wire. Yeah, and she's rubbing all over him. I feel like there would be ramifications oh, she, for they, that, right? She's wearing a sweater. <laughs> it is a, it is a everyone thick sweater. knows sweaters and the, always block barbed wire. And the baby really keeps the angle appropriate, no, no, so she's exactly. just the, ba- yeah. the baby's uh, pushing his hand out, getting barbed wire out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I I think those points kind of don't talk to her performance. I mean, I don't want to talk like you said too much about performances. But it's kind of like <clears throat> I think that's kind of like the failing of the movie is that all the other characters don't matter. They just right. stare at the surface. His story, a uh, toiler, sto- toiler the story. The only reason I think that it counts as um, a little bit towards a failure failure of performance is that if we were clearer on what the hell she is doing throughout the whole movie, I feel like the ending might have some additional more additional clarity yeah. you know what i mean um but as it is if you're a real dick you'd say gravitas gra- with a rolled r yeah gravitas like that that's how it's said i think it i think it is how it's yeah. said I'll that part out too. but yeah she stinks in it for some reason i, I think, Lohan, he, I think he just went with the expectation of amanda seyfried like what like he has always cast actresses based on his expectations. Who he thought they were going to yeah, be. Yeah, who he thought. And she's just awful. But she didn't ruin the movie. Like I think the movie is fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, wrapping up, 
I think First Reformed is fantastic. It, unless something, you know, knocks it out for me, it'll be my movie of the year. Um, just I just think it's great. You can uh, say it's your movie of the year so far. So far, it's a just it's a really um, I had a really visceral experience with it. Um, yeah, I, you know. I mean, it's definitely top three for me right now. Um, I, but I still don't know if I like it. So it's kind of speaking a lot to my opinion on film this so far this year. It, when a Steven Soderbergh movie, Unsane, is my favorite movie of the year. That's it kind of uh, says a lot. That's a hot take, as they say in the culture. <laughs> and and won't you be my neighbor? A perfectly serviceable documentary is number two. You know, yeah. I, I I just don't know how I feel about it yet. I I I, I know what it sets out movie. to do, but I don't know if it does it successfully. Um, I just do know that everyone thinks that it's only an environmental allegory. Well, uh, those people are just wrong, wrong, though, right? I I hope so. If yeah. if it is just an environmental allegory, then wow, it's the same way in that mother. Like people said, mother was like an environment. You know, it's about it, you know, it's about global warming. <laughs> We might talk about Mother sometime in the future. Oh, spoiler alerts. Or is it? Um, we've seen other films, but not really worth talking about now, I don't think. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll start with 105 of our lists. Uh, do you want to take lead? Uh, okay, yeah. All right, so now... Um, Let's keep that in, by the way. Let's take in... Do you want to take lead? I take lead, yeah. Ah. I'll do it. I just don't know, Mario. Um, so now we're going to kind of um, dive into the meat of what this podcast is about. Um, we each ranked our um, favorite 100 movies and, from and to 1 give to it, 100. To give it a bit of perspective, um, I think each of us have seen in excess of 2,000 films. I mean, I, I listed it out, and I've seen, I think, something like 3,200 movies Yeah, I didn't go, that I remembered. I didn't go as far as that. I work in, for the state. <laughs> and, uh, let's just say my eight-hour days are usually punctuated by long stretches of time where I can list all the films I've seen. seen. Nice. Um, <laughs> to get back on topic, so I we're believe. just gonna go number by number. Um, we're gonna go, you know, this week as a kind of a test run, just to see how it works, uh, just to show everyone what's <laughs> and going on. And it's working on. real well so I far. I think it's working fine. Um, we're gonna do our 100 um, to 105. 101 to 105. 101 to 105 Look at favorite him. Oh, he's movies. Getting out of himself. I know. I really just want to jump in. I have so many things to say about my 100 that I really want to jump into. I it. haven't even watched your 100. I don't think yet. Well, you've definitely seen it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I I'm looking at his list right now. I don't even remember what my 100 is to be honest. Um, all right, so um, 105. I feel like there should be some music. Or like 105. You know, no, I don't know where there should the be. Explosions after every time I listen to number. No, I think there should be your saved sound effect. Your you know, oh, oh, oh. saved the saved file sound effect. Yeah, like, bring, bring. Um, all right, so my 105. Tom's 105 is kind of inexplicably, but makes sense in my brain. Is uh, Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire? Um, I guess it's from what 1996. I am open up. You- don't you know, have that written down? I didn't have it written down. I've got a space for it on my list, but I didn't write them down yet. I'll have it this the next this week. A, I mean, guys, we're usually going to be doing one movie each a week. Right. And we're doing fucking five we're this week. We're doing five this week. Also, have you noticed how little we've cursed? That's impressive. I thought we were going to be worse on that. I did get too. More, we can do it. On it. Get more beer in yeah, us. Yeah, we'll get more you know. beer. Um, I think the four so pack is wrong. Tom Cruise, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., or Cuba Gooding Jr., won an Oscar. Um, 
and Renee Zellweger is in it, and Bonnie Hunt is in it, and Jonathan Lipnicki is in it. Most importantly, Jonathan Lipnicki. I think Jay Moore is actually the most important character um, because he has to be Tom Cruise's friend and enemy simultaneously and make it seem like there's no problem with anything. But I think that gets me to one of the... Did you know James L. Brooks produced this? Sure, of course he did. Really could have imagined him directing this and it being no different. It actually probably would have been worse if James L. Brooks directed it because if broadcast news is any evidence... He would have made it way Are you worse. saying I should scratch off as good as it gets as my number one? As good as it gets was on my list for a while, and then I watched it again, and I was just like, ugh. Oh, yeah, because it's, it's, it's just... fucking flaming garbage. <laughs> I like, but the, the problem is I really like Helen Hunt. Um, I think, she's, I also I think like, she's really good in it. Well, you know, I liked Mad About You, too. So Yeah, I did not like Mad About You, but now we're Twister off. was good. Now we're off. Yeah, Twister was fine. I'm going to start talking about Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire, um, I say... 1996 inex- film? 1996, there you go. Is on my list inexplicably because I don't actually think it's a very good movie. I think I'm not actually sure what metaphor Cameron Crowe was going for, and that overwriting he was basically going for the overwriting metaphor. Yeah, it's definitely overwritten, but in the sense that like, how is sports agent a a useful metaphor for literally anything? I don't know, and if it's just about like midlife crisis or it's just about kind of being stuck in a place you don't want to be in, if it's just about the idea of becoming more human, or learning how to love. Getting Troy Aikman into the acting business because right. his career was winding down. I don't think, or giving, like, you know, Jerry O'Connell his best role. Um, I don't know, was that Kush, the quarterback's name? Kush. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kush. Um, uh, I'm not sure how sports uh, yeah. agency does any of those things better than anything else. So the idea of sports agent seems to just kind of be like jammed into this movie as hard as it can. Um, It's on my list because I think that um, Tom Cruise and Cuba Gooding Jr. are just like utterly fantastic. Yeah, no, I would, I would like the, the one positive I've ever written about this amongst my diet, try, try, (laughs) <laughs> the word is tirade, ladies and gentlemen. The tirade I have against Cameron Crowe's writing and my speaking ability. Yeah. Um, no, no. Tom Cruise is able, just fantastic in this. Cuba Gooding Jr. plays an insufferable asshole who I think Crowe thinks is redeemed at near the end. But yeah, see, I think he's he's not. He's still an insufferable asshole. I think he borders. And you and me are kind of are both sports fans. Um, I think he does the idea of um, you know these archetypal like diva athlete really well. And I think he does bring a little, like a lot of humanity to him. You don't ever see, and this could be a lot of just like manipulation of Cameron Crowe's part. You don't see a lot of um, what we perceive to be like the other side of that archetype, which is like him, you know, having dalliances with other women or like staying Mm -hmm. up all night and doing a bunch of blow or doing steroids or like any of this stuff. Bass fishing. Which he (laughs) Yeah, there's no, there's no bass fishing. His brother really sucks at bass fishing. Um, so Jerry Maguire is on my list. It, I think when I do my 101s to 105s, I'm, I was thinking in terms of, or especially everything after 100, I was thinking mostly in terms of recognition and kind of what is it about um, this movie. And I think that's kind of one of the things that we didn't discuss in our opening monologue about our, our, our well, podcast. I, I, I think, I think, the I idea think of like, the... what did these movies do? What did these movies do for us as film as film viewers? And, and trust us, when, when we get to episode one, we'll, we'll have that 
shit figured well, out. Episode and one, it well, episode one. Honestly, episode one is going to be like three hours long. Yeah, but or no, or episode you know movie number one is going to be just like <laughs> forever. Um, but yeah, I mean, the I, I don't remember when I saw Jerry Maguire. I doubt I saw it in 1996 when it came out. I'm assuming I probably saw it you know, on video whenever that came out. Um, although I remember watching the Oscars when Cuba Gooding Jr. won and thinking I. I don't know if I thought he deserved it, but he seemed like he was having a really good time. Yeah, I kind of want to look up who he's against, but at the same time, it's like, we don't, I don't want to get into that sort of thing. Like, well, the Oscars are yeah. really, you know, doesn't, doesn't make any difference. Um, but yeah, there's a, I remember there being a recognition watching this movie and saying, like, Tom Cruise is hitting some kind of, of note of, um, of, I didn't know what a midlife crisis was, but the idea that he's sinking. Is it a midlife crisis though? He's still sure. young. He's like what, thirty-five in it? It doesn't matter. It's he's Tom Cruise age. Okay. Tom okay. Cruise is no no age. Oh, boy, he's think... never played any age in any of his movies ever. The thing I found most interesting about Jerry Maguire to me, and in like I said, the sea of things I do not find interesting, is um you do see the evolution of Tom Cruise being like the fucking cool hot shot guy to being like somebody with like a little bit of vulnerability. Um that then kind of like Paul Thomas Anderson later takes in Magnolia and kind of just goes like, oh, I'm an actual good director and good writer and I can actually make this work. But you do see, I mean, Cameron Crowe's kind of like, you know, acting for dummies for somebody, I guess. I, he's, he's not awful. Well, the, um, yeah, the, the writing is so ham-fisted at sometimes that it takes... Let's not forget the best line from Vanilla Sky delivered by Cameron Diaz, I swallowed your cum. <laughs> The 14-year-old me lost his shit laughing. Well, I I think he was probably in that. That was post Almost Famous. It really struck me as, I'm going to try to make a more complicated movie. And then he just utterly failed. He ripped off an already mediocre Italian movie, Spanish movie. Um, But like, so the writing is really ham-fisted. And I think, you know, I think one of my favorite scenes is is like the help you help me scene. Which the right, if you read it on the page, you're like, this is fucking awful. But, but Tom it's, Cruise it's well sells the shit out of that scene. And Cuba Gooding Jr. does a really good job of playing off it. And I think right. that's that's what's, what's best about Cuba Gooding Jr. And, you know, people, a lot of people have spoken out against, like, his recognition for the film. I don't but, think that's, like, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think he's really, really good. No, no, I spoke out against Cuba Gooding Jr. Right. I think, I think it's not necessarily, like, he's not a torture force. And it's like, he doesn't need to be, he needs to play off of Tom Cruise. Because people before had expected Tom Cruise to be, like, this massive amount of charisma well, yeah. and just being like the cool guy and this guy he's like kind of fucking broken he's ruined lots of movies with his charisma yeah no exactly um but in this he's, he's he doesn't his charisma doesn't work um right not, on purpose it that's doesn't a, work on purpose yeah that's very good um and cuba Gooding jr plays somebody who you know jerry Maguire is supposed to have been a person whose charisma did work in the past and now it's starting to feel like he's starting to fade he's starting to doubt himself and cuba jr plays plays that role really well of kind of playing off of that a playing a guy who's like what the fuck's going on with my my friend slash money man you know? right yeah yeah yeah. and where Cuba Gooding jr's charisma has not gone anywhere it just is there but it's a more honest snow charisma dogs? <laughs> yeah snow dogs or okay a radio um no we're not we're not talking about radio <laughs> i'm gonna timestamp this at 41 <laughs> seconds there's a radio mention <laughs> that's coming out <laughs> Um, all right, so that's my um, 105, Jerry Maguire. Go ahead. This is good. That's my rating 105. Uh, so, yeah, my 105, similar genre of sports biopics, is Ghostbusters, the 1984 Ivan Reitman movie. And like we said, this is kind of 
a list, especially at this part where we're we're talking about what the movie felt for us and what it did for us. And, and Ghostbusters is competently directed. It's really well written. Um, and it's one of those movies I saw really when I was young. Sure. And, yeah. and so I wasn't one of my first exposures to horror comedy. Horror is my favorite genre. Some of the movies I'm going to talk about for the longest time are going to be horror films. So <laughs> prepare yourself for that. And I think, I think talking about the gore special effects in a first reformed, uh, kind of signify the kind of person well, I am. It's important. Oh yeah. Um, so it was one of those first movies I saw and, and the set pieces in it are just fantastic. I mean, there's not a lot to say about it. I mean, it's, it's, well, yeah, it's Ghostbusters. I it's mean, Ghostbusters. It, yeah. It's, it's iconic. Um, doesn't necessarily need to be iconic. I don't know. It just, it has really good set pieces. It, it's well written. It's confidently directed and like up in the air. Take that, Jason <laughs> Um, his only good movies. Thank you for smoking. Uh, I don't think he's made any good movies. Thank you for smoking. But that's fine. That's another another time. Another discussion we'll never have. No, we're never. But, you know, not. I I think Ivan Reitman just kind of let Aykroyd and Ramis take the film. I don't think necessarily Ivan Reitman's doing much in it. Um, no, I think at that point they were all fairly professional at doing that kind of of movie, and I think it's yeah. It's interesting that there is not a lot of action in the movie. No, no, no. And anything that any action that there is is contained um, fairly well within a set. So you're just seeing these guys, three guys most of the time, but four guys when um, when Winston's in there, um, just kind of act in a space yeah. and act off of each other. And it, and it really it's weird to watch it nowadays. And there's there's still like a comedic crackle. To it, yeah, no, exactly. Um, which has never gotten old or anything like that. It's always funny. I, I think, I think, like especially for me, um, Ackroyd wrote three films around that time, uh, including Ghostbusters. Um, he wrote like Spies Like Us and Dragnet, and I think all three of those films kind of like are equal with me in how much I enjoy them on a comedic mm-hmm. level. Um, once again, it's just, it's just Ghostbusters is something I saw when I was six years old. Sure, and it just does what it needs to do well. Um, yeah, and it's kind of there's, there's nothing like there's nothing to criticize about. There's nothing yeah, really to say? like lose your shit about either. You know, there's there's nothing to say. It's that's why it's in our 105 because it's not much of a discussion to have. I mean, um, like the even like when the special effects are bad, you're never just like, oh, this is taking me out of the movie. You're like, no, no, no it's cool. It's a movie about and then because they it's redeemed a bunch of New York Jews most likely <laughs> changing uh, ghosts. Yeah, how much do we love the Rick Moranis in that movie? He's the real hero, isn't oh, he? Yeah, no, that, definitely. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, that's Ghostbusters 105. Awesome. <laughs> So, we're back from a break because we're going to be doing eight more movies. We usually just have two during a regular episode, but we're going full fucking hog here. <laughs> so, we're drinking another Connecticut beer from Relic, Plainville, Connecticut. It's a 7% IPA called Devil's Harpy's Hex. Not Devil's. It's got a little devil-looking thing on the back there. Spring as Ken. Yeah, no, it's a, a, you know, I I appreciate the, the can art of Finger Guns, and I appreciate the can art here. Yeah. Um, the beer, 
I I have to say, not Relic's best. I typically enjoy Relic's um, doubles. They do a lot of beers, though, and this one's a little too sweet. Yeah, it's um, it's it's very syrupy. Yeah, syrupy. Um, there's just not a lot else there. Doesn't to it. taste bad. No, no, it tastes. It but tastes it doesn't fine. have um. There's like no body. It's got a lot of yeah. It's got. You know what's interesting is that it's got no body, but it's got a lot of weight. You know what I mean? It's just like a really heavy, like it sits on your tongue. Yeah, for an IPA, um, it's, it's but it's not doing anything on my tongue. It's just there. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's good though. It's not like it's not like a terrible beer. It's not going to no, make no. me want to throw up. <laughs> okay, so getting back to the shit we're actually here for, my number one hundred four, the nineteen thirty five Night at the Opera, Marx Brothers, directed by Sam Wood. Who also would direct Pride of the Yankees, a movie my dad loves that I don't give a shit about. <laughs> it's a Lou Gehrig movie, I think. Most things I know about Lou Gehrig are that Dennis oh, Leary probably stole a joke about so it. So it is uh, about the Yankees, Pride of the Yankees? I'm pretty sure it's about Lou Gehrig. Oh, right. I've never seen it. Cool. I mean, I've seen bits of it. Just enough to know. I've never seen it. I don't it. like it. Uh, so yeah, Night at the Opera. Um, this is one of, I think, the later Marx Brothers movies. I think they had already done a few films with Paramount. Or maybe MGM. They they had just moved from one studio to another. Still considered one of their classics, and I would mm-hmm. I'd agree with a lot of that. Um, as a comedy and as a general film, it works. Uh, Sam Wood's kind of a boring director. Everything's kind of staged in the way you we watch this. Recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, everything's staged in the way of it's it's staged like a play and not interesting. Everything's framed face on, and the, everyone's turned towards the camera when yeah. they don't need to be. No, I mean, I think, uh, not as a criticism, it's This is also my one of four. We're just going right on the negatives of (laughs) a movie that is... Well, I think it's important that we keep these in perspective, that, like, we're not saying that these movies are, like, you know, changing the world, but, like, they spoke to us then, but that doesn't mean we don't recognize the flaws. This would be a stupid podcast. We were just like, here's 105 movies that are amazing. Yeah, and you should watch them, you fucks. (laughs) Um, No, I think the, um, the scene when they're on the boat, and everyone's trying to get into the, the room the scene, yeah, is yeah. kind of is like um, very typical and representative of what you're talking about. Where at a point, at a certain point, it's funny, but at a certain point, you kind of lose track of like what the hell you're looking at. Yeah, and because and it's it just feels, a flat surface. It feels like three walls. It feels like you know there, there's no dimensionality to it. And I, I would not necessarily say like people would say it's of the time, blah blah blah. But I think there's a lot of movies. During that time, which which understood dimensionality and understood that, you know, we weren't doing fucking plays anymore. Um, and I just don't think Sam Wood was that good enough of a director. Right. But there's there's some interesting um, – I don't want to I don't watch a lot of movies from the 30s, so mm-hmm. you can correct me, like, about this. But there's some interesting cinematography, like, towards the end when they're doing the opera stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, I mean, that looks really – like, when he's, when he's climbing up that thing, up, like, the backdrop um, – like when they're chasing him, yeah, yeah. That, some of that stuff looks really good and is, looks really deep in that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't it say it's looked, necessarily revolutionary, but like I don't it know, shows yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, there's there's other things of the era that we'll talk about later um, that even come before this film that do that better. Um, but let's just talk about what I like about this. Movie. What do you like? Because it's not Sam Wood. Um, I, I think the scene that really gets to me. Uh, it, it's one scene in particular. Like this is this is definitely going to be one of those movies where it's just one scene grabs me. Yeah, sure. Um, and there's a scene earlier on with uh, God, uh, Chico and Groucho, the Sandy Claus scene. Yep. Um, it's all right. That that's in every contract. That's that's what they call a sanity clause. 
<laughs> you can't fool me. There ain't no sanity clause. And there's a, it, it's a great moment of absurdist comedy to me. And I watched it during a period in my life in college where I was fucking obsessed with Samuel Beckett. <laughs> uh, I spent the better part of six months trying to turn waiting from Godot into like an atheist apothecary, like carried like a slightly like agnostic thing. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I, I kind of got like a lot of inspiration in the sense that to me, I feel like there's a lot in, in the beginning of that. Not kind of like the, the finishing joke of, oh, there ain't no sanity clause, like, haha, good punchline. Um, but that beginning part where there's a lot of that back and forth, and you get a lot of that back and forth kind of like, I have a Costello, sure, yeah, yeah. Lauren Hardy, but like this to me kind of like reeks of absurdism. There's just a lot of like absurdist jokes. I keep repeating the word absurdist, but there's a lot of jokes that kind that basically, in a way, kind of encapsulate the fact that it's like nothing matters. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's silly and ridiculous. Well, it's pretty... I mean, it's interesting because it's really... I guess these movies are kind of supposed to be dark, aren't they? Yeah. No, no, definitely. And, like, and like that's the big criticism about Night at the Opera is that, you know, they, they had made other movies in their previous tenure, Duck Soup being one of them. We mm-hmm. might talk about that at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, that were definitely the hallmarks of the error in saying... And they're, they're better directed. They're, they're better written. Because I think like it definitely spoke to a time when the Marx Brothers were trying to say something, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't want to make any speculation because I haven't read this shit. But like it's obviously Night at the Opera safe, but there is those moments. I, I think it's there. There's those moments definitely where where they they come out, it comes through, and it's just so approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's there a lot of their other movies later earlier movies I don't think are as approachable necessarily well right um, yeah right out of the gate it's just like joke 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 yeah. joke 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 and like nothing there's no stakes like, no it's, there's it's, no stakes at all yeah um but i mean it's really easy i mean you know, i wrote some line like one liners down when he's you know early when he's having dinner with that woman when he's like oh everything reminds me of you except you yeah you know what i mean it's just kind of like this is kind of <clears throat> not to put too fine a point on it but this kind of to me kind of exemplifies like the whole movie, and the sense that like nothing really, nothing really matters here. No, and like and this is just a collection of we're gonna string together a collection of jokes and songs um, as much as we can, and it's gonna be fun. Yeah, but like this isn't like a big. Unfortunately, songs. Kitty Carlisle's not 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 a great part of the movie. She doesn't necessarily need to be there. Who is she? I like all the musical numbers. Oh, but I like the music. I thought. I mean, fine. the musical numbers were ridiculous. Yeah, I like that too. That like you know when the guy was singing on the boat you know, off the boat to her and, you know, nobody seemed to notice anything, but like, it wasn't like a musical in the sense that like things don't happen and everyone was breaking into song. Everyone was just standing there looking at them. And then someone was like, Hey, bring that guy on the boat. But it's definitely like, it's punctuated by the fact that there needs to be, I mean, the Marx brothers are definitely the the biggest part of it. And the meanness of it's nice. I mean, that's a weird thing to say, but (laughs) it's super mean. um, I mean, they beat, who do they beat the shit out of? Out of Tommaso. Oh, yeah, yeah. But like, no, they like, really, like... Like, the joke I really love, going back to that um, the cabin scene, mm-hmm. is when he's talking to the steward and goes, uh, you know, oh, you're supposed to tip here, and this is the, cap- and the steward's like, oh, yes. And he's like, do you have two fives? And he's like, yes, I do. And they don't need the ten cents I was going to give you. <laughs> like, that's a really fucked up joke to do, like, during the middle of the Great Depression. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're... This is 1935. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't you, even you, think, you about think about that. that. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like, and it's like the Marx, like especially Groucho, 
mean fuck. I mean, you kind of get that throughout like his life. It's just he's a mean bastard, and like that's what I liked about it is the fact that like, you know, like I said, Beckett and um, Sacha and all that later on would with the absurd as me snapping my fingers too would uh you know, hear a lot of that while I'm trying to remember <laughs> shit um would capture that meanness because like it just didn't matter and and that's a lot of what I like about this is kind of like it's a it's a dummy's guide to to nihilism almost and that's like how kind of Ooh. how i kind of read it yeah i mean i don't know i mean i think that's, that's a, a i think really true thing, but. that's um that's one of those appropriate reaches you know what i mean because mm-hmm. it, it does kind of kind of settles into that thing where um i don't know nobody's good at anything no and everyone's a piece of shit like and every, yeah everyone's a bad guy yeah um i guess except for the one singer oh yeah yeah um um, Jones. But it wasn't. I mean, I, I, I like I said, I don't watch a lot of those movies, and I found it, um, I found it humorous, like much more humorous than I thought I was going to find it. Yeah, no. But in a in in a more modern sensibility, like not in kind of like oh look at those old men doing whatever. Like it's still, it not that it's relevant, but it's it's tone, it's like sub like it's the subver- subversive like moments are really yeah. kind of make it still like a very watchable thing. And it's still you know it's still. I mean, I'm not gonna say it's timely to today, and the moments are timely, but like the biting humor is still fucking dickish. Oh yeah, still like that. Like I said, that Stewart joke still in today's uh, frame is is mean. And it's, I mean, it's and it's weird. Like the breakfast scene, like when they get off the boat and they're at Groucho's apartment and they're like eating breakfast and yeah, like, yeah. and uh, either Chico, Chico or Harpo is doing just like weird things with his food, and like nobody's really saying anything about it. They're just you're just watching this guy like eat. Like I forget even what he's eating. Yeah, yeah, but he's just eating weird stuff, and like you're just kind of like, what the hell? Like what? No one's even. Everyone has something to say about everything in this movie, but when this guy is like eating, I don't remember what it was like a pile of sugar and a pancake or whatever. Um, nobody has anything to say about it, and like it doesn't. You know, it's not exploding the cinema universe, but it was just odd. But yeah, it was no, a exactly. good odd. It wasn't like a bad odd. Like especially in a time where where everything was. I mean. You're you're starting to say a turn of that, but like a lot of movies, especially studio movies, were kind of explaining everything to you because they still feel the audiences were idiots or whatnot. But that doesn't do a lot of that, and like it doesn't kinda, do any of that. Yeah, it does it to a point. Like there's definitely those moments that are kind of thrown in there, which I think are the movie's weak points, where it does do that, um, and it has like those moments of reprieve. But mostly, it's. But I think it doesn't fucking crazy. It, it doesn't do that too in like the best sense in that it doesn't like explain the one-liners. Mm-hmm. Like the one-liners just tossed out and you either heard them, you either got them or like you didn't get them oh, because yeah, no, there's like another the san- one-liner like, coming. Like even like the the dumbness to me, like the, the stupidity kind of like the sanity clause line, like mm-hmm. I know there ain't no sanity clause. Like That's... Some people probably were sat there even today and go like, I don't understand that one. Yeah, there's there's no sanity clause. What? What? What does that mean? Yeah. They should put one in there. Donald Trump's probably least favorite joke because he just didn't get it. <laughs> I don't think he gets any jokes. <laughs> um, what else? Anything? Anything else, Mario? Uh no. I I just like I said, this this is especially I think this and Ghostbusters. I I mean, we're soon going to get into films that kind of more punctuate my opinion on things. Oh, we're gonna get into some <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get into the shit. But these last two movies kind of just and and the next movie coming up. Um, kind of, um, you know, just kind of, kind of set an establishment, kind of set a, set a, set a framework. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. And other movies I saw when I was younger and they kind of, well, I saw Night at the Opera in college, but kind of like set up a framework for like kind of how I see movies, especially today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Good. Um, all right. So that was Mario's 104 Night at the Opera. My 104 is uh, Storytelling. A movie I rewatched today. That, and I rewatched it last week. Um, Todd Salon's 2001. He 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 went on to do or did before this happiness, right? We did, ha- yeah. He did happiness, and he did um, right after this. He did storytelling, and he did right after, or right right after this. He did palindromes, and then he did like life during wartime and dark horse. And this um, might be the first movie of his I've seen. To be honest, I don't, I've never saw happiness. Never saw palindromes. Yeah, this. I mean, it's interesting because I saw. This will be my first mention of the York Square Cinema in New Haven for all of you New Haven files. Um, I don't know what the fuck he's talking about. So Before my time. New Haven used to have a movie theater. Not Criterion, but downtown. Before it had an Urban Outfitters and before it had an Apple Store and before it had... L.L. Bean coming soon. Any of the shit that it has down there now, it had uh, two record stores. A classical store and a regular store called Cutler's. And it had a, and it had a second... Barnes and Nobles, where the Apple Store is now. That was used Educated to sell. Burger around at that time. Educated Burger was around. Yeah, that's, that's a good burger place. Um, and right on that strip, there was the York Square Cinema, and I spent a lot of my nineteens and twenties and twenty ones inside the York Square Cinema. As we get closer to the top of my list, we're going to be talking a lot about that. I um, just be along for the ride. <laughs> I don't have a lot of feelings about movie theaters. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think. The f- interesting thing, I don't really have a lot of feelings about the York Square as a movie theater either. Just I just saw a lot of the mo- yeah. like a lot of of, of movies there. Um, as a theater, I think it was. I remember it being a dump. It was two screens. I never ate any food there. Um, there was a boys. Out dump. of fear or no? It just didn't. Like I didn't. It didn't ever strike me to go into that movie theater and eat something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if well, like, if you had Educated Burger next door, like why? Maybe that. Educated but, Burger is really good. But I didn't go. If you guys are listening. I never to went there. Really? Yeah. Um, another time. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's gone now. Can't have it. <laughs> we'll get another time. We shouldn't go back. Um, but storytelling is one of the movies that I saw there. Um, and it really, from a recognition standpoint, if I'm still talking about recognition, it's the first movie that I saw where I kind of recognize the presence of ideas. And I'm not even sure how well the film works in the end. Yeah, I'm but not sure But it is sure literally either. exploding with ideas. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how well thought out those ideas are but definitely i mean it's 2001 2001 i, think, I mean yeah. definitely it's before 9-11 i mean it's filmed before 9-11 because sure yeah, yeah. the world trade center is being shown in the background mm-hmm. um but it's definitely one of those earlier films kind of like explore like that kind of melancholy that came with the early 2000s well it's funny to think about this movie now in terms of um like house that jack built like lars von trier's house that jack built which everyone at Cannes like reacted to I'm it sure we'll be talking about that in Five months, maybe. I mean, if it gets American, we're both. Gonna, yeah, it's gonna. We're, we're both gonna be upset afterwards, but we're both gonna see it. Um, I, I but mean, you might be upset. The idea that um, Uma Thurman's gonna get hit with a <laughs> wrench—that's <laughs> always a positive selling point in a movie. Um, the idea that um, I don't know. He's getting. A, I feel like Lars von Trier is getting a lot of heat for the idea that he's used um, House at Jack built as essentially 
um, a way to kind of analyze himself and analyze his relation. At least, at least we think so. I mean, that's what everyone kind of believes. Yeah. Um, they also the thought fil- first reformed is about environmental. People are idiots. Well, I'm just taken from like going off. It of seems like, like people we trust. Yeah. In, in the review community, say that that's kind of what he's trying to do, and that make from everything I've read about and everything I've seen, that kind of makes sense. And I think storytelling is is um, kind of Todd Salon's same version of that have you have you seen all of his other stuff or i've seen happiness and um palindromes, palindromes. Okay. um but so this is post happiness so he took a lot of so, shit oh, this is after happiness. yeah okay. this is he took a lot of shit after happiness for just like it's darkness and it's weirdness and it's kind of like taboo subjects that he kind of tried to make funny mm-hmm. um which is where i think a lot of this stuff comes from it's not so much so, you know, the movie's broken up into two parts, fiction and nonfiction. Basically, two parts. Uh, basically, two one movies, part with, two a, separate with, movies, a, yeah, with yeah. a Pixar short before it. <laughs> um, fiction kind of tells the story of uh, a creative writing student um, played by Selma Blair. Um, and, you know, it seems to it's be... really ha- short, too, which I... Yeah. I know, I found slightly disappointing. Um, but I, I think it's just... It's there to support the second half of the movie. Really? I, I, I think so, anyway. It's, the, it's not there... As a first part of the movie, it's there as kind of like a uh, like a prelude or an introduction. Like this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the ideas um, behind how we formulate truth, mm-hmm. um, and it does that um, by putting Selma Blair in a situation where she's, you know, she's dating Leo Fitzpatrick's character. He's got cerebral palsy. Um, he, does that actor have cerebral palsy? No, he's oh. the guy from Kids. Wow, the white kid from Kids. That's fantastic. I, I, I did not look that up, but he did that really well. He, I thought he did that pretty good too. Yeah. Um, and he thinks that, and she kind of intimates it in the middle of the section that he's, she's really dating him because he has cerebral palsy, and she, she thinks that she's gonna get something from him. Yeah, somehow. no, I, it's not pity. Like she, he mentions early on about pity, but he's, pity, he's pitying himself. I mean, right. That entire she m- doesn't pity him. She just she's you. She's actually free. using yeah. him. No. Um. And then she says that she didn't think that he would be a jerk because he's got cerebral palsy, which is a weird thing to say. I'm sure there are plenty of people with cerebral palsy who are jerks. Mm. Um, but she puts herself into a situation where she ends up having sex um, with her professor, who I don't know who plays him. I don't even, I, maybe it should matter. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to look it up. Who cares? Yeah. Um, it's fairly violent sex. Um, it borders, I think. On it, it's it's ambiguous as to whether or not it can be considered um, a rape. Yeah, the, that, that's the weird thing about it to me. Um, everything in it's consensual. Um, it, it even until, t- it's telegraphed it's, also with the pictures that she finds. Well, yeah, so no, she knows she knows what she's getting herself into. But I think she's fine with it until he starts intimating what she's going to say. Well, I think she's fine with it for the whole thing because yeah. there's a point where. Um, I mean, I don't know if... I, I think she's using him, too, in the same way that she used Leo Fitzpatrick's character in the sense that when he makes a point of saying that... They're, when the movie starts, they're having sex. And she make, he makes a point of saying that when pretty, they have it's pretty sex... pretty vanilla, pretty yeah, yeah, typical. Yeah. Nothing, nothing inspiring. I mean, very specifically, nothing inspiring. He makes a point of saying, like, you don't even sweat anymore when, when, he, when we have sex. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of intimating that she doesn't find it exciting. You yeah, know, it's, and no. he says as much. He says, like, you're not my... You're, but I'm then, not your kink anymore, I believe right. he says. But then... When she shows up at his house after she has sex with her professor, he makes a point, and Todd Salons makes a point of saying, oh, you're sweaty. Which, whether it's a rape or not, 
can be argued, but she at least found it exciting. No, I, she yeah, at I least found it stimulating. I wouldn't. Right? Necess- I, yeah. Okay. So the decision to red box over the sex is at a certain point. I think where early on when they're kind of building up to it, he's telling her, get undressed. Well, that wasn't just to stop you real quick. That was only done because they wanted to give an NC 17. Oh, and so he only, he didn't want to take it out. So he just put oh. a red box over it. Well, there's me looking for shit in places where he just didn't edit stuff out. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Never mind. Um, but I think that's really I, first time seeing this movie a couple days ago. But isn't that really, but isn't that really clever, but it, kind of, it works. It, it, I think it works in the sense from a message standpoint too, because all of this stuff can be manipulated, and which yeah. is I think which is what the point of that experience is. So she goes and I guess like home and I, she writes a story um, that she presents in class where she fictionalizes the rape and I just or I, fictionalizes the sex, and then she gets criticized. She gets I, crucified by the other students I in the class for being disingenuous. That. I don't buy that. But it's all, though. but it's all a message. That's the thing. It's not like an. I don't think that's an honest. I don't think it's an honest movie. Mm-hmm. I think it's purposely manipulative to address. Well, yeah. How the second, Todd the second Salons half, kind of that. sees what he's doing as a filmmaker. And, and the second half, and we'll get into it. Um, <clears throat> we're gonna be talking about this one for a while, folks. Uh, the second half definitely kind of hallmarks the fact that there's manipulation going on in, in emotion and manipulation. There's, I mean, that that definitely is. I agree. The first part of it. Yeah. Um, I guess I guess you're right. I guess I guess kind of the red box aspect of it, knowing that now, I mean, I guess you could say it's consensual. She's uncomfortable with the idea at first. He plays a dominant role. She plays a very submissive role, and that's what she kind of wants. I think that's why. Yep. Maybe she's she's not in the mood of the king because she sets it up during the dinner scene with the professor saying, you know, she he he fucking berates her and says like, you have no chance of becoming a writer, which is just a great line. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like if he has no no small play, no nothing, he's just like go fuck yourself. Yeah. And. She seems to like take a kink in that. She she enjoys hearing that. Well, she, yeah, she says thank you. Yeah, no. thank you for being honest. And and he pushes her buttons. I th- I think I think he he but, deliberately set up the photos. I, I mean, there's a possibility that he deliberately set up the photos. Maybe. Well, I'm assuming because they're in the bathroom that maybe he uses them to like masturbate or something. Oh, well, that's but regardless, but Todd, Sal- Todd Salons puts the photos there, so she, he. But definitely, the character doesn't go like, "Well, I need to, you know, give me a second and sure." Well, I mean, I think it's instead of him being like, "Listen, this is what I like." He gives you a stack of pictures that says like everybody, like even people in the class are participating in in what you're going to participate in in a minute. Yeah. And the fact that she goes out there, and I don't want to get into a Me Too, like, oh, you can just leave thing. Um, it's a powerful man. Um, and it's, she's it's a, a woman. She's it's a submissive a woman. woman. She, she has agency. She has. I, I would say... He makes a point of saying that she has... Showing that she has some agency. Because he never... He doesn't even get off the bed. No. Well, he does. He stands up. No, no, but like after... Yeah. Like when she's... After she gets out of the bathroom, he's just laying on the bed. If she wanted to just leave, she, and he already doesn't like anything she's written, he doesn't think that she's going to be a good writer. Yeah. So it's not like she has anything to gain from doing it. He's already told her what he thinks about her. She, I mean, she obviously I don't think believes him at that point. Like she still thinks she has potential. I don't think. It's I don't, necessarily like I'm going to prove you wrong, but like she's I don't looking yeah. for something. She's looking for something to show, like life she's or looking, invigoration or. Well, she's looking for I think real. I think. She goes in there looking for some kind of version of real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she, you know, when he says, like, as soon as you write it down, everything becomes fiction. Oh, that's a great line. I actually had that written down. Oh, it's fantastic. The, uh, because she's just like writing Faulkner's it. Faulkner's East Coast and Disabled was a great line. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess Faulkner is already East Coast. Well, when they were talking about, like, you know, I think Updike has psoriasis or whatever. Yeah. Or Updike has this. And it's like, yeah, that's... Well, the best thing about that is I'm reading... Um, not to get on Larry Twinge right now, but reading... I kind of took a lot into the first part of reading Faulkner's Sanctuary mm-hmm. right now, which deals, like... It's kind of like Faulkner said he wrote that for profit. And it deals heavily with, like, the rape of, like, a proper kind of... You know, a, a white girl mm-hmm. sort of thing like that. Like, like they say... I'm not saying it's a white girl, but it's like, say... In the movie, you know, in in the, in the fiction section, they state like the one criticism I was always like it's a white girl's like blah 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 fantasy of, of yeah that's of one of the things that person. people say yeah um and, like I was kind of found that interesting that I'm reading this kind of novel right now that's sure. dealing with that and like obviously that's not the intention I don't think he went in there going like oh this particular novel but well I think it's purposely provocative yeah and I'm no, sure exactly. Faulkner did it for the same reason. Yeah, that it's 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 a situation, especially. I mean, it's good casting in terms of like the professor's humongous, and Selma Blair is Selma Blair. I mean, like so the, the it's, body the body build. Yeah, if I mean, we should probably look up the actor, but phone's over there, and I've already drank two beers. But um, <laughs> he's built like Keith David. You know, he's yeah. I was I'm sad. I'm always sad that it's not Keith David. I mean, yeah. I mean, I feel like you should always <laughs> have Keith David do those roles. He's he's big. He he and she's. At her tiniest, this is her around maybe a couple of years before her Cruel Intentions days. I think she's it's after Cruel. I think it's just after just Cruel Intentions. Yeah. So she's super small, super, you know, not, I don't want to say delicate, but delicate, yeah. Compared um, to him, yeah. Compared to him. And and compared to what she's used to. Sure. Um, you know, she's used to being the dominant one, and now here she is being used. And she's, but she, at the same time, she it, it is that kind of like power play, because she's trying to use him for inspiration, however that means, or she's trying to use him for a thrill. Right. Which I think is like the same thing. Yeah. I think that's I think that's an interesting um, aspect of the of the movie is um, like its thoughts on creativity and stuff like mm-hmm. that and like how you can you know is creativity confined to the page or can we like is is it like something we live? You well, know I guess I, mean? I guess the big thing to say is like when you saw it, what what spoke about it to you exactly? Well, just I, I'm seeing this. I'm seeing, sure. like, I'm seeing this right now. Well, that's my like, eyes. Like I said, it was just it, like it was the first movie I had seen. On my own, like you know, driving to New Haven by myself at nineteen, um, to see a movie, um, and it was this movie, and or you know, not by myself, but with my buddies who were mm. also nineteen, um, and uh, yeah, it was just it was like the first movie that I saw that was like really provocative in like a way that I kind of understood like this is trying this movie is trying to say something, and it wasn't you know, you know what movie had I watched a lot back then like Johnny Swade. Um, or that, oh, I seen that Brad Brad Pitt movie, or like um, Meet Joe Black. You know, everyone. No, Meet <laughs> Joe Black was almost on my list. I have a soft spot for Meet Joe Black, but like shitty Kevin Smith movies, which I hate, yeah, yeah. which we'll get into later on the list. Um, but like, that's what everyone was watching. And then like, we went to see this movie, and my I don't want to say my head exploded, but it felt kind of like my head exploded. Like there's just so much here. There's so much here to take in. There's so much here to grapple with, and um, the acting is really good. And like I recognize, you know, I had seen The Big Lebowski a bunch of times by that point. So like you know, swollen John Goodman, and like you know Julie Haggerty, you know, getting who, now and getting into like the nonfiction right. second half, um, and even you know seeing Selma Blair, who like everyone had just seen in 
and cruel intentions kind of do this other thing, which is, I think it's one of the interesting things about some of these movies is, is the movies that people choose to do to kind of erase the memory of other movies. And I think this is like one of those does, movies. Does Havoc with Anne Hathaway pop in either one of those? No, I don't, no, I don't think so. Unfortunately, yeah. There is an Anne Hathaway movie on my list though. Yeah. So, um, that's, uh, that's Havoc does have a soft spot in my college mind, but <laughs> for different reasons that that's not don't make a list. But, um, so the second half of this movie is nonfiction. Um, and it is, it features a documentary filmmaker, um, who's, Fucking Short. Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Fantastic. In that He's great. Time. But I think he is, he even I think looks a little bit like Todd Salons, like just kind of pale and, and, and excuse the term Jewy and, you know, um, you know, down on his luck, like yeah, poor, like, he, like he you has, know, just, he's just, he doesn't I know mean, what he's doing with himself either. Usually like Paul Giamatti plays these down on his luck characters. He's, these kind of like shit bags in a shitbag situation because of their own selves. But like he, he goes full in with like the slight hunch. Oh, and, like, sure. Constantly apologizing and just, he's fucking pathetic and it's just great. And, but he claims, so he starts, he, he says he wants to, he, to make a documentary film. He says he's a documentary filmmaker. He tells an ex, you know, a girl who he used to Pam. like in high school um pam right yep that's the the that part of the story opens with him talking to her and um so, she's married with kids and so has a good job too. Oh, it's like it's, it's a scene that goes i'm like this there's a lot of this that i appreciate it's just like a lot of scenes going on for too long mm-hmm. um kind of reminds me of um david lowry doing that a lot nowadays oh like sure, sure, scenes sure, that sure. go on a little too long I think like, he's doing like, it on purpose. But. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Uh, both of them are doing it on purpose. And that, that's what's great about it. It's like you kind of get to that point where it's uncomfortable, then right. it's too long, then you're like, oh, no, this is really uncomfortable, and it's great. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he does multiple times here. Yeah. And um, I was saying, well, no, you're just, out. yeah, you're just talking about the other Oh, okay. Movie. So he starts making. Um, Sorry, I'm gets... slowly changing my opinion of this movie. As I'm <laughs> okay. That's about. what, that's what, I mean, that's what the kind of what the podcast is for. Like, yeah. we just talk it out, and then, you and know, people the movies realize, end up being what people they realize will. opinions change all the time. Yeah. Unless you're Donald Trump. Well, his opinions change all the time, too. They're just not opinions. They're just like brain farts that come out of his mouth that everyone acts on like their legislation. But that's a different conversation. Because, um, they, because they are. So um, so uh, Paul Giamatti plays, you know, he's a documentary filmmaker. He decides he's going to make a movie. Um, he wants to make a movie about high school, which I thought was really interesting because he obviously has a lot of problems with high school. I think he thinks yeah, he's like going to entire... go into this high school and excise some demons from his life. But he focuses on this um, pothead, stoner loser guy named scooby um and he goes such a fucking like great oh it's a fantastic um and he meets scooby's family and they're um they're jewish um and john goodman and julie haggerty play his parents and i don't know julie haggerty just she's absolutely channeling airplane again just like doing that but not airplane i know not but it's like it's like airplane in a fucking nightmare oh sure um, I mean, I I love the dinner scene when like they talk about like the fact that they're survivors because they know somebody who like was a survivor of the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then Scooby's like, "Oh, that means we're if it wasn't for Hitler, he wouldn't have been born," and like they freak out about it. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a really interesting aspect of this movie in the sense that everyone is trying to build a narrative of yeah. who they are you know, where they came from, um, you know, they're, they're trying to like stage their personality. They really want to be something very specific. Um, and it seems like Scooby is the only one who kind of is just himself. And even Paul Giamatti, um, 
really kind of seems to get off on the idea that he's somebody special. Yeah, because he constantly he, he's like the, like in the beginning when he's talking to Pam, he shifts from you know I want to be an actor to I want to be a writer to I want to be you know I want I want to be an actor to I want to be a lawyer to I want to be an, like, he doesn't fucking know what he's doing. No, but even I I go to the great scene where he's downstairs in the driveway talking to Scooby's brother mm-hmm. and like about like you know school and then he's like oh you like you know talk about cars and he's like oh you think. Do you, is, our, is it important to have a nice car? Yeah, and where he's like already he's changing like the shit. Shooting the shit. And then meanwhile, Scooby's upstairs with that kid and like taking some mushrooms and holding a gun and like getting a blowjob from this kid. Yeah, yeah. And like the really interesting stuff is happening upstairs and Scooby's supposed to be the point of this documentary, but he's not focusing on any of that stuff. He's just kind of like, he wants to be the cool guy. He wants to sit next to the cool kid yeah. with the cool car with like, you know, the hot chick. Um, and he does. That's who he wants to be. He wants to be next to that person. So I think it's why you know at the end of the movie when the documentary kind of is shown, we kind of get to see the fact that he's he says very specifically, "I love these characters," um, to his editor, which is something I think that Todd Salons took a lot of criticism for, in the sense that he I think people thought that he was using his characters. As like he was treating them like shit. Did he? Did he like, get, to prove did a he point? Yeah, for, from happiness or from, from happiness. Yeah, <laughs> that he was kind of like he was, you know, manipulating the audience with this stuff. Mm. And he was trying to say like I'm not manipulating this. Like this is essentially who I am. I am these people. But simultaneously, he doesn't want to be these people. He wants to be over these people. So it's I, I find I get a lot of pleasure in like thinking about the like Todd Salons trying to juxtapose both sides of his head. Yeah, like in this movie. Um, and I think he's really successful at it. And I think, I mean, for me, the most the most powerful scene is when um, Scooby's younger brother, who kind of has... Mikey. Mikey, who has no, like, filter. He just kind of talks to their Venezuelan cleaning lady like she's not an old Venezuelan lady who's separated from her family and is just Oops. scraping shit off the floor all the time. Are you saying when, what, after her grandson has right. been executed? And, they, and she says that he raped and murdered somebody and he says well maybe she was just a bad person yeah and she goes out of her way to say he wasn't a bad person so even the lady who we've spent the better part of this whole section of the movie thinking is like the victim is no better than anybody else yeah she's still making shit up as she goes along you know she has a very specific version of what she thinks her life is and who's in it and and what her actions and the people in her life represent um Talk- so even she's not above, like, the, the manipulation. Talking, okay, so going to that point, talking about Mikey, there's something fucked up with that character, right? There's something, like, different with that character. Than I think there's supposed to be, but I'm not sure that there else. is. I mean, I took that kid as, like, the personification of just awful. And I, I, like, I don't, everyone has their, their fucked up shit in that movie. Everyone's flawed, but has, like, their good attentions. Uh-huh. You know, Brady Brady kind of accepts his brother's homosexuality, but at the same time doesn't want it interfering. Or his brother's curiosity. Right. But doesn't want it interfering with, like, his social status. The father is a selfish prick, you know, just like the mother, but they think they're, what they're doing is best for their well, kids. And, and I, I don't see any sort of redemption like that in Mikey. I just see pure... I don't know if there's redemption. I think that... Not redemption, but, you know, no. just like decency. There's yeah, no yeah. decency. There's definitely not any decency, but I think it's a. I think it's an interesting point is that I think I think the kids in this movie, and this, especially this, the second half of the movie, um, 
are like the yeah the truth. first i say the first half are just like in in fiction they're, they're not, just characters they're characters yeah exactly like, i think i kind of agree with you that that not that fiction for as much as like i feel like i, I prefer fiction fiction is there to set up non-fiction yes you know? i agree with you um so the kids are the truth tellers because scooby's doesn't scooby doesn't know who he wants to be but he's never said anything he's never said anything different he doesn't like try to pretend to be somebody he's not he's just a stoner um his brother who is a cool guy and supposed to be above all this stuff feels very comfortable coming into the bathroom and being like you know he doesn't say it outright but he confronts his brother on like on the the, the rumors you know what i mean yeah. like you know what is this mikey i think is also a truth teller but he just tells hard truths and he's um and it's stuff you don't want to hear and it's stuff like you don't want to know and it's perhaps also like the view of things from like a six-year-old or however old he's supposed to be his perspective um like the things you'd want to say and want to do but you suddenly right, you like, have that filter as you get older you know when he says to the old venezuelan lady about like her job being not really that hard like oh what do you do when you're not working and she's like i'm always working he's like not right you know but you're not oh, working yeah, now yeah. when she's clearly like cleaning off like the the stovetop yeah, yeah um it's a it's a it's a version of the truth wherein the adults really try to pretend like things are different than they are mm. like john goodman thinks that by screaming at scooby to take his sats he's going to turn his son into any kind of like good student yeah and he ends up having to like use his fucking you know his connections, connections yeah as they keep saying the connections to to get him into princeton yeah it's um, it's and I I did I, they they all die in the end except except Scooby, Scooby yeah right okay I, I didn't know if it was just Brady or if all of them died no they all die okay that's fun why it was you, good why do you think what like um spoiler alert we're gonna spoil something spoiler the house burns down and everybody dies um I don't know I think probably because um yeah if, if you care about spoilers you you might not want to listen to this I would imagine that Scooby is probably pretty sad. Or maybe he doesn't know what he thinks, but perhaps it's his first attempt at, like, making it up. Yeah. Like, when he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he's like, no. He's like, oh, the movie's a hit. Yeah. Like, he knows it'll make a good end to the movie. Like, they bring when Paul Giamatti and his cameraman come to the site of the, the burning house, they bring a camera with them. Is there, is there clapping after he says the movie's going to be a hit? I don't know. Like, you know, clapping kind of underscores it. And he's always been looking for the connections. There's movie. clapping right before it. Yeah, from when they play the. Um, I'm trying to remember right now if there's clapping. They do right the screening. After. I'm not sure. Because like that would make a lot of sense that Scooby kind of like feels sadness, but at the same time, he knows he has this that is... dream. because because he always has this dream. Basically, you come in a talk show host. There's even a scene where, kind of a weird scene Conan where O'Brien, Conan yeah. O'Brien actually shows up. Yeah. In, during when he's fucking tripping on when Scooby's tripping on mushrooms, getting a nice little. Well, hunger. I love um, I, I love the It movies or like the It directors, like right after they become the It director and like all these people want to work with him. Yeah. So like he can cast like, you know, Conan O'Brien and Selma Blair and John Goodman and Paul Giamatti and all these people. He got Dylan Baker. Wasn't Dylan Baker in? But uh, was Dylan Baker somebody when Happiness no, came out? I always out? like to think Dylan Baker somebody. <laughs> we all I do. Know, have an affinity for Dylan Baker. Um, but that's, I mean, that's where the movie is. I mean, that's kind of why it's important to me and why it's always like stuck in my head. Is yeah, that it's just, like, it's complicated and it's dealing with a lot of really interesting things and not morally. I think that's the thing I like about it too is that he's not making any kind of moral statement on any of these people. No, it's about a statement on creativity people. and about yeah. like how we perceive ourselves yeah. and how other people perceive us and how that leads us to change who we think we are, who we're trying to be. Mm. No, I, I can, I can definitely agree with that. Um, 
I guess my opinion is a bit skewed. Like I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, but I saw it after I saw a bunch of movies that kind of said the same thing mm-hmm. of the time I saw the movies. And there's definitely competency in its direction. There's competency in its writing. Um, I don't know if he did the best of jobs blocking his actors or whatnot in it everything mm-hmm. um I, I don't know i just i, I feel yeah, like i feel like there's, there's still i i don't know i know i, I want to kind of take back the blogging of that because i don't like that that fucking matters um i mean you can even leave that in okay. um but what i think really struck me was that fiction like I, I think I agree with you that fiction is only used to set up nonfiction. I think if he was a little more competent, or had a little more. I know he's competent. He's definitely competent. He's he's good at his craft, but I think he just needed more under his belt before he got to this movie. That he needed to like kind of set up. He needed to more naturally set up nonfiction because right now it, it it to me it feels. Well, I feel like nonfiction could have worked on its own merits. Yeah. No. I like. I, I don't think he needed. I, I don't think he specifically needed fiction to kind of explain nonfiction. Um, I think it's fairly obvious in, like you said, it's compli- it's, competently think, directed, I almost, written. I almost feel like non. I almost feel like fiction is there to set up tonality of the film, like, like, like. That's interesting. Up, set, yeah, yeah. Set, yeah. set, set how your, your emotional affect, because you're already kind of fucking feeling uneasy, and um, and what like the humor is going to be like. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like how, um, and how think, some of the future darkness is going to kind of. I don't think you need play. that. Yeah, I don't think you need that. I, I think. It's interesting, but fiction, yeah, you're, I think you're fiction right. Fiction exists as its own short movie. It exists as a really well done short movie that's you know a little bit unnatural, but it doesn't matter. But like nonfiction, I think kind of establishes its own set of humor just off of that phone conversation. Yeah, I think, I think so too. I think like I just, but the only problem is like then you don't have a feature. Well, then it's an hour long movie, and I don't know how you fill that. And Palindromes is so much weirder than anything he's done, yeah, yeah. like ever. So I, I haven't seen it yet. It's weird. No. Um, I also saw that the York Square Cinema so. Um, all right, so that's 104. So my 103 is um, going to be uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh-huh. directed by James Foley. Yeah, <laughs> whatever. Directed that, by David Mamet. Whatever that means. Um, Basically directed s- by David Mamet, written by you know written fucking, by David Mamet. Your direction doesn't matter when David. Well, Mamet. you know, well, to be fair, like you know who directed who, it. Who knows if David Mamet can direct? Because he did that William H Macy movie, State in Maine. No, did he do stay? Did he do stay? Yeah. No, he did that one with the guy William H Macy's. I don't know. I saw it once. I feel like William H Macy's in all of his movies, best <laughs> point, but yeah. But uh, like, maybe he's not a good director. Maybe he's just a good writer. I think he's a good writer. Um, I'm but not sure how. It doesn't need direction. Well, it doesn't need any direction. I mean, and I would argue that like the director of this movie is like you know Jack Lemmon. What else did James Foley do? I don't know. He did that name familiar. Sure. Okay. Not Dave Foley. Oh. No, I, I really thought this was a news radio people. <laughs> this is a Kids in the Hall production, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the actors really are kind of what does this movie. And um, I actually, it's funny because like the most famous scene in the movie is Alec Baldwin's. Like, Is it? I think so. Is it? You get it, the, the Cadillac, you get fired? Yeah. Thing? Not... Nah, I disagree. I, I think mean, it's I the guess, most famous scene in the movie. I guess it's the most famous, but shouldn't it? And it's the only the most famous because well, you, and me you are, can... You it's, the only, it's only the most famous scene because that's the one you can play in clips. AFI's greatest lines isn't go, you stupid fucking cunt, you know? He's not going to say that line. No, but it's like the always be closing, like, you know, 
coffees for uh, coffees for closers. It's the most um, famous. It's the most famous. It's the most famous, and it's the most famous whole scene from that movie. And uh, the thing that bothers me, what is that? That's from the chair. Mario has acquired like a weird hand disease where his hand is like flaking <laughs> off as we're sitting here. I, I have a couple of broken chairs I picked up off the side of the street. I'm going to reupholster eventually. Oh, there you I go. I've had these for two years. Well, eventually we'll come we'll, someday. We'll do a reupholstery podcast also. Oh, yeah, I wonder if there is one of those. Yeah, bro, fuck, probably. Um, but no, no, I agree. It is the most famous line. Um, but it's not even in the original play, which bothers me. And really? I don't even know is how it? much it's needed. Is like, he, it's is just he, for the movie. Is he a stupid fucking cunt in the original play? Did Alec Baldwin say that? No, no, it's the one. Oh, the Al Pacino one. Yeah, yeah, that's an original the original play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best, best speech ever. See, and I actually don't think that's the best speech ever. I think the best speech ever in this movie is Jack Lemmon's speech to, um, um, Al Pacino, Ricky Roma, when uh, Jack Lemmon's sitting at his desk and Al Pacino's sitting in the side chair, and you just get two guys, kind of like two classic actors, just working off of each other. So you know. Jack Lemmon's telling the story about how he got those people to sign the, you know, the contract on the real estate that he's supposed to be selling. Mm. And, and, you know, he's getting, you know, he's really getting into it. And we talk about when Levine's talking to the people who obviously don't have the money for it. That, that yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but we don't know that they don't have the money for no. it yet. We just, you know, we know he's, and he's talking about how he like, That's the he, offered him, he offered him the pen so that when he's just like telling him that story, it's just so classic. It's, and it's not movie acting. It's. There's, I guess there's it's no, play acting. There's no movie acting. They're just sitting. I mean, no. There's Alec no, Baldwin. There's Ed Harris, who is just fucking awful. Yeah, yeah. yeah who just yeah, screams right. through the whole movie, or except when he's like having his like kind of like circular conversations with Alan Arkin. Yeah. But I think Alan Arkin makes those scenes more than Ed Harris makes those scenes. Like Alan Arkin's reaction well, to Ed, Ed Harris, Harris is kind of like, you know. Ed Harris isn't bullying. Isn't so bad. Isn't. I mean, he's not great, honestly, but. Everyone else definitely elevates him, right? And I think, and he elevates him enough to where he's competent. Like, I'm he actually kind of. Competent. I don't know. We don't. We don't want to talk a lot about Oscar stuff in here, but I'm actually kind of sad that like Jack Lemmon didn't get an Oscar nomination for Shelley Levine because he's so, like, he's just so good, and he's so. And when he's desperate, he's so desperate, and when he's confident, he's so confident. Oh man, that and so, it's like everything's earned and everything's genuine and everything's real. And that's what, like, Al Pacino's just doing Al Pacino things, and everyone's just kind of doing their thing. But Jack Lemmon's just kind of, like, selling. He's just selling these moments. I mean, those the last nine minutes of that movie are fucking fantastic mm-hmm. in the sense that it goes from Jonathan Price being fucked. Oh, Jonathan by, Price, yeah. Just, just, he's fantastic. And it's a, that's a man broken, like, Jonathan Price fucking does broken. Like, I would watch two hours of Jonathan Price being broken. I know, it's fantastic. I mean, he should have been, Jim, like, replaced Jim Caviezel with, with Jonathan Price and you probably have a great movie. <laughs> Talk about the passion. Um, but, um, you know, you have Jonathan Price getting just broken by, by Williamson and then you have Romo breaking, Romo? Romo. Romo. Romo breaking Williamson and then you have Levine breaking Williamson and you have that twist and then Williamson breaking Levine. It's just, it's just men fucking men right. for 10 well, that's what, minutes. and that's, I mean, if David Mamet were listening to this, he'd be like, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, no, men, it's, it's men it's fucking def- men. Yeah, and that's, like, it, it's, like, I don't want to get into, like, the entire, like, toxic masculinity discussion, but, like, this is definitely something that, that warrants that, that discussion in a bit, what in I the want, sense of, not masculinity, but I necessarily wonder, just, like, I wonder if it's Takio's max, masculinity or... Machismo, fake machismo. Right, but I wonder if it's more, if that is a, um, leads to a broader discussion about, like, toxic capitalism. 
mm-hmm. more so than just masculinity and the things that capitalism requires people to be, like who it requires people to be. So it requires these guys to be this way, to do this shitty job, um, more so than um, they're acting this way because they're men. Like they're yeah, acting yeah. this way because they have to sell some shit. Well, I mean, like, it's and there's like, no I other way to time, retain their know? dignity, like, than to kind of like you know just you know man up and like grab your dick and walk into somebody's house who doesn't want you there. Yeah, which like is, how do you do that? Which is great when like in the end when Levine kind of like falls back on my sick daughter, and Williamson just tells him basically go fuck himself. Because like, I don't like he shows, you. Yeah, 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 I don't like you. But then he also shows weakness, and the Williamson's like, well, now really fuck you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause like you, you never you know, like Levine's saying. I'm coming, going to come back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be back to being the the, the closer type of guy. That you know, the the big the machine. Who's like yep. called the machine? Shelly the machine Levine. Um, and I think that's kind of like the hallmark of like no, the, you know, you're done. You know, you could have been something. Maybe you could have been that that thing again. Like I, not just I don't dislike you, but like you showing weakness and you like preying on that shows that you're fucking done. Well, and it's just it, there's a. There's a um, justified cruelty, I think, too, that kind of runs through the whole movie. More like they're kicking these people to the curb. But, you know, if you juxtapose um, Al, uh, um, Al Pacino's age and, you know, Ricky Mo- Roma's age versus, like, Jack Lemmon's age. Like, he's an old man. The You know, Roma's a young man. Alec Baldwin, at that point, is a young man. Alan Arkin's a, an old man. Mm-hmm. Ed Harris is kind of somewhere in between, and he's the kind of somewhere in between guy. Um, there's really like this kind of streak of at some point life. And I guess you could say capitalism and I guess you could say real estate. And I guess you could say being a man is going to chew you the fuck up and just at some point it's going to spit you out. Yeah. Like it's going to spit. you're going to think that you're really making something of yourself when in reality, like the system is just devouring you. And then when it's done with you, when it's stripped you bare, it's just going to say you're all done. Yeah. And that's kind of, but it's, it does it so well and the acting so good and the script is so good and the energy is so good that you're just kind of like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So guess I'm sorry. Levine. I, mean, I mean, we can agree that the script and, and the performances, excluding Ed Harris, maybe um, at parts. Yeah. Are fantastic. You know, like, like there, there's, there's nothing really mm-hmm. to kind of like say down about them. Sure. Um, I don't know your opinion on the opening, the Al Baldwin opening. You know, I just funny. think it's I don't, it's just unnecessary for me. I, I would rather so I would rather watch Jack Lemmon just act than yeah. Alec Baldwin yell at people. And that's like a major part you said of the film. Um, so, do you think like you more focus in on 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 what was the play? Um, um, I think so. I don't think I recognized it when I first saw it. Yeah, like well, oh, no, this that's, is a, that's you know, yeah, yeah. this is a play. This is not the play. Um, but I know it's a play, and I think it play is like a play. And I think it's helpful to know that it's a play when you're watching it. And I think that's like, I mean, I guess, fuck, fuck if I know what James, I mean, James always, I'm sure done stuff that matters to somebody. Beverly Hills Cop? <laughs> Did he do that? No. That's not so. But he at least, at least it's, it's, it's somebody who was smart enough, I think, to go like, listen, I cast who I cast. I mean, or I cast who David Mamet probably casts. Um, David, this is David Mamet's thing. Like, mm-hmm. it was at least smart enough to kind of like let them go. And yeah, and I guess you just have to put well, the camera well, in the right be, place. Yeah, and always be closing. Like, we can argue if it does or it doesn't work. I I don't think it's important to it. 
but I can see like where for a film audience, you know, it's a little bit more of a kind of like a progression. Sure. I think, I think the threat is implied in the whole play in the whole script minus the Alec Baldwin thing, like the kind of how you're out. If you don't do this, Um, if you don't make your numbers, you're out. I don't think it needs Alec Baldwin to yell it at people for like five minutes, like to kind of sell that idea. Um, And this is, this is 92. It was a little later. Oh yeah. 92. Um, Which is kind of, which is interesting. the, The thing and talking about yelling, the thing I find most interesting about this, and I like I rewatched some of the scenes again today, um, and why I, why I agree it's it's it deserves to kind of be seen as like like a movie because like mm-hmm. I think a lot of people now see the post scent of a woman Alec Baldwin, mm. where he's just like a fucking piece of shit, constantly yelling his lines, and yeah, when he yeah, does yeah. that does that entire like that my my one of my favorite speeches in film that stupid you stupid fucking cunt yeah, yeah. speech, you know like when he does like what are you going to do about it asshole. The, the modern day Alec Baldwin, or not Alec Baldwin, fuck me. The modern day Al Pacino would have screamed that, would have said that, well, he lacking also, anything. But he doesn't do that. Like like everything actually feels natural. He he. It's justified. He whispers lines. Sure. He, the only thing that's yelled and what are you gonna do about assholes? Asshole. You know, like like he punctuates things. Like he's actually kind of shows like, oh, at one point Alec Baldwin could fucking act. You know, like that's what's great about this movie is like. All of these for, guys are for, doing work. Yeah, they're all. I mean, they're and they're doing legitimate. They're not just like acting. They're like doing the stuff that they learned to do at some point, wherever. Yeah, and I think I think like I think it's a special. It's important on that time that like the only act, the only major actor at that point who I think uh, in this movie who was really being impressive was Kevin Spacey. Like Jack Lemmon was about ready to go into his my fellow Americans grumpy old men days. Al Pacino was going to become his center of the woman character for the next fucking 30 Set years. Center of the woman any given Sunday version yeah. of Al Pacino. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know. And Ed Harris kept doing character stuff and Alan Arkin, you know, won his Oscar. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, but like, and John, like all the rest of the people kind of just like faded off. Into the, but the, like, especially those two guys, you know, Lemon and Al Pacino, who were just such hallmarks of acting beforehand. Like, this is like the one last time where you go like, oh yeah, they're fucking gonna act, you know? Like, they actually yeah. can do shit well i think there's people that would say like oh grumpy old men like has walter matthow and him like acting but yeah i mean if you take like the apartment jack lemon versus like and and glenn glary gen ross jack lemon you can kind of see how you get from a to b who would say who would say that walter matthow and jack lemon are acting i think people thought film? that was a good movie but it's a fine movie but i wouldn't go like oh man Remember i think they jack- thought they were really good I feel like I remember those movies being like really significant when they came out. I think they're. I think because people like people love the Odd Couple and they're like, oh, they're old now. Ugh. But regardless, like it was. It's it's an important movie. It's good to me, especially because like it is important to show like it's an actor showcase. And you need well, just, those. I don't think it's one of the things that like people don't talk about that much when um, they talk about movies like the acting. You know what I mean? I don't think people. Like, and I'm not saying I understand it better than anybody else. But I feel like if you want to understand acting. Like this is a good place to start because yeah, you you're don't... watching. Pe- you're you're just like watching people like act like intelligently. Yeah, yeah it's intelligent it, acting. It's not wanna, screen chewing. It's you, for a reason. You want to watch a movie that's not extremely well directed. You want to watch a movie that that's well. I mean, well written is important. But like a lot of people point to like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie to be like, look at you know, look at this hallmark of like Daniel Day Lewis acting, or look at this hallmark of blah blah blah. But like. You have to pull back layers for that. You have to look at, like, well, how much that's his direction, you know, like, 
We have an extremely competent director. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about more about Paul Thomas Anderson <laughs> the entirety of this podcast. Yeah, but um, you know, when you have extremely competent or even accomplished directors creating these performances, you don't know what is the performance. Mm-hmm. And I think Glenn Gregor Moss is important because the direction doesn't fucking matter. You know, like no, all that matters is the writing and the acting. No, and that's I'm, like the speech I mentioned about. You know, Jack Lemmon telling about how he got that person to sign the thing. The camera is literally in one spot, and then it backs up for the whole. I mean, that's so the director just needs to put the the cinematographer just needs to put the camera someplace and just let Alec Baldwin and Jack Lemmon or fucking Al Pacino and Jack Lemmon just do what they do. Yeah, and and like that, and it sells the whole scene. The entire fucking close between Williamson and Levine is just back and forth. It's like two two static cameras going back and forth. Well, that's for fucking six minutes. And that's actually, I think, bad direction because like they put it in this closet, so the camera is kind of this weird, crooked, like above shot, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't really, it doesn't really work from a, a dramatic standpoint like it, it almost matter. looks like a security camera but it doesn't mm-hmm. matter because you just like really feel the tension between these two guys like these two guys are ready to go at each other yeah like one of these guys is gonna you know williamson is ending levine's life yeah and you can feel it and levine's doing everything he can to prevent and williamson like from ending his there's life no there's no like and the thing i love too there's no like music hallmarks there's nothing for like no the slow realization of williamson going like how the fuck do you know that the that the, the, the check is still there. Just the it's face, just like the, the face and like the the stutter that Spacey has. Spacey, an amazing actor. Just gonna put that out there. Still, he's a good actor. <laughs> actor, uh, um, but you know, like we're. It doesn't need anything. It just is. It just does what it does. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, would, I, would agree that's All right. Let's, I got a three fish. Wanda. All right, so that was uh, my 103, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, so toss it over to Mario for his 103. Yeah, and uh, we've been talking about a couple of heavy movies there back and forth. So we're going to keep it heavy with me and go 103, A Fish Called Wanda. Mm. A trend-setting, dramatic film. Very 1988, heavy. directed by Charles Crichton. A man who I tried to look up to see what else he did. <laughs> it didn't matter. Like, I... I, I <laughs> Did he do something else? I don't re- remember, really. Um, he did get nominated for Best Director for this. Is that which is interesting. true? That, that's absolutely true. Wow. He got nominated. He also he got two nominations for this. He got nominated for co-writing it with John Cleese, which that one Which is fine, hard. yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, Kevin Kline wins for Supporting Actor. Which, Again, totally justified. Yeah. Um, As we already heard in the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> I... I not much to say about this. It's it's an extremely well written movie. Um, it's it's another competently directed movie uh, that that allows the actors to do what they do. Um, the, the three of the main four leads I think are on constantly. Klein's fucking doing work. It's fantastic, yeah. Michael Palin is amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 Cleese, you know, Cleese and Palin working off each other, especially during that Sutter scene after. Um, you know, Otto mm-hmm. eats, eats, uh, eats Ken's fish. Oh, yeah. It's, it's great. Just like they're trying to sing it. Sing it, you know. Sing it. Sing the car. The car. The car. Plenty of time. Car. Um, it's just, you know, Cleese. It's it's basically an extension, a long extension to me of a, of a Monty Python sketch. In some ways, maybe not necessarily in its absurdism, but definitely 
capturing that same humor. Um, I saw this when I was like 14, I think. So that's why. Yeah, I've seen my first exposures to to Cleese and and Wade did. It's funny because I've. This is the sound of a beer opening, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh, that's nice. I am. I've actually only seen pieces of this movie. Like throughout my life, I'm pretty sure I've seen the whole thing, Mm -hmm. but not like in one sitting until just now to watch it for this. Um, And it's just really, really weird. No, it is. It's like, I mean, good weird, but it's it's a New Haven motorcycle. Yeah. It's definitely um disjointed in in a way, but well disjointed. Like like yeah. disjointed in a way where it's I'm glad it is. Well, and kind of like how we had the conversation about like um first reformed in regards to the idea of is this a movie about eco-terrorism? Like you can ask that question uh, like a similar question or a similar type of question about this movie. Like what is this movie supposed to be about? Like, because yeah. they talk a lot about like American versus English, but like, is this movie no. really about American versus English? There's, I don't think there's so. There's an entire subplot, you know, of of Otto's hatred of of England, and none of it matters. Like, like right? A lot, yeah. And and like this this movie in many ways feels like a lot. There's a lot of disjointed subplots held together by a very thinly constructed plot. Yeah. But. Well, the subplots work together as just a bunch of sketches, and that's what this movie is to me. Is, is that it's a bunch of really well written sketches, uh, a lot of fantastic body acting. Um, you know, I, I think. I mean, it has it has one of the the classic kind of cliche comedy routines with the, with the steamroller that you know, like Austin Powers. Would rip but then he later. ends up back on the plane. Yeah, like looking fine. at them. He's fine. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's not once again. I mean. Unfortunately, in the, the my first three films on my top 105 to 103 aren't movies that there's really a lot to say about. But you feel, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing about the list too. And I, I, I because this is the first episode, I think we can kind of keep going back to this idea. Is that like it's just when you're making a a, a ranking like this, it's just kind of something you feel like yeah. a fish called when you when you're ranking it, you're just kind of like, oh yeah, fish called one. Yeah, it's perfect. Like, it's, if it's, it's go, it goes right here. It's definitely a thing like you know, Ghostbusters doesn't fit in this, but like absurd kind of comedy is, is definitely a, a hallmark of, of things I appreciate, especially when I was younger and kind of like kind of developed what I find great in comedy. Yeah. And is, I, um, and I feel like that about like something like the big Lebowski too. Like this has lots of big Lebowski esque. Oh, I, I hate, I hate the big Lebowski, <laughs> but like the two things that I we won't talk about that at all. The thing, <laughs> no, we definitely won't talk about the big Lebowski. The thing that I think is like the underappreciated thing. And you kind of hinted at it is like the Michael Palin, I guess Ken yeah. is just so good. And it's not even like the stuttering, because he stutters a lot in like Monty Python stuff. I thought that was a very Monty Python note. But like when he starts to kill the dogs, mm-hmm. like the descent of Ken into like a full bodied like assassin. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. with like the with like the knit cap and like the jacket pulled up and like the you know yeah, yeah, the yeah. sniper rifle. But like just being really sad. After, no, after yeah. he killed the dog, but laughing when the lady dies. Yeah, no, you know what I mean. Exactly. Like it's just it's just so weird and so good. And the other thing I wanted to point out, in which you can maybe explain to me better, is like what the hell is? Why is Jamie Lee Curtis licking everybody? Like why is she so? Does she have to be so sexual? I, like was that part of the movie? Because I feel like she's sexual anyway with what they put her in and like how and like her character and stuff. But then like. She just seems to go overboard with like yeah, the that, sexuality. I think. I think. I don't know. With going, the rope pumping. Off, go, yeah, exactly. There's there's a part where you know, um, Archie is 
speaking in Russian and speaking Italian, and, and she basically fucking, you know, fingers herself with a rope, a uh, rope thing, and you know, loses her shit. And there's this weird transit. I mean, this is this is me just making a wild claim, like. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis kind of got her start making like Plenty of Innocent, Final Girl, and mm-hmm. Halloween, you know, Prom Night and whatnot. And then she has that weird transition in trading places where people are like, oh, fuck, this woman's hot. You know, and, and they play her as a sexual being in that. And then I guess Fish Called Wanda was just going off of that. Like, that's all I can think of. Because she, she feels out of place. I agree. She over, I just think she oversold it. Yeah. Like, and it becomes like some of her kissing. I mean, there's a lot of kissing, which it's an 80s movie, so, like, the ugly old but men like, always get, like, the young girl. She, but, like, she just, like, oversells it with, like, like the lip licking and, like, all this. And it's, like, just, yeah. it just seems unnecessary. Which is, like, and I'm not going to say a lot of good things about this director in the future, but James Cameron, I think, <laughs> later on kind of gets that, like, Jamie Lee Curtis is awkwardly unsexual in true right. lives. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he makes her, like, this housewife. I think that's true. a yeah, sexual yeah. thing, and, like, she just is fucking, she doesn't do it at all. I mean... I mean, to be fair, young me appreciated the dance scene in True Lies, but it is a joke unto itself in that scene. And I, I, I do think it's kind of one of the failings of the movie. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's a failing. Though. I don't think I it's agree. a failing either. It's just awkward. I, I and maybe kinda, it's because I kinda, it's I the no, it's like, you know, I almost I almost said it's the nineties because two thousand eighteen, like kind of, um, I mean, I guess Nicolas Cage does it all the time, but like the little overboard stuff in a fairly tame movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just like, a, it's a physical comedy, like in the vein of Monty Python and whatever. And yeah, then she and I, kind of injects this, this like, like a absurd sexuality into it, which I don't think is funny as much as it is weird. weird. Yeah. Right. And I, and I kind of wonder if like, it kind of takes me out of it. Kind of takes me out no, of the movie no, I agree. a little bit. I agree. And I don't know if, um, if like Cleese kind of saw that, um, you know, Cleese and, don't know how much Crichton had to do with directing it. It feels like a Cleese movie. It mm-hmm. feels. He could have told me John Cleese directed this, and I would have been like, "Yeah, fucking, of course he did." I'm um, gonna be honest with you. I kind of thought John Cleese did direct it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think he. I think he might have directed Fierce, Fierce Creatures, which was like a spiritual sequel to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, don't quote me on that. I saw Spirit. Just quoted. I saw. We're Fierce on recorded. We're on recorded once. Man. Oh yeah, don't quote. Uh, well, <laughs> shit. Well, shit. Um, if only I was a Wikipedia of subpar sequels of the movies. Oh, man. Set in a zoo. Um, I don't know if that was the intention, but, like, it's it's such a minuscule kind of, like, It is. Ailing. Yeah, yeah, It's just, I, I just wanted to address it because it was weird. No, but it's fun weird. Yeah. My so, favorite line. What was your favorite line? Do you have a favorite line? God, I can't. Um, My favorite line is when Jamie Lee Curtis tells Kevin Klein that Aristotle is not from Belgium. Oh. Uh, and Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Klein just looks, like, totally perplexed. And like shocked that he's that he's not from Belgium. I think the I think the best ones like when the when Cleese calls him a Bulgarian. Oh yeah, and, yeah. I mean, going off of the audio clip he played in the beginning, mm-hmm. and he says, "I'm not a Bulgarian." <laughs> Fucking there's oh, some Kevin of, and what's so interesting good. about that. What, what is interesting about that movie is I do think there's some bad lines in there that kind of like are just fucking nerdy. Mm-hmm. That like Klein. I mean, I I kind of think Cleese knew they were gonna work. Um. Like, I think he knows his actors because, like, I think that happens in Python. That ha- like, there's just bad lines in it. Sure. But they're, they're bad lines that are fucking hilarious when delivered, right? And that's exactly what I think happens there. And they're almost kind of part of the experience. Like, they're part, kind of yeah. part of the joke. The yeah, bad lines even, that even he knows if, aren't going to land. Even if, it, even if it, it falls flat, which it never does because it's delivered with a measure of, like, certainty, 
I mean, even if it fell flat, it's surrounded by so much good writing and so many good jokes that'd be like funny in itself. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. Not much more to say about no, a fish no, called Wanda. It's funny. It's, it's funny. It deserved all like this is definitely a movie that pops up on list everywhere and people are like yeah fucking sure why not i think people love this movie you know it's a movie that doesn't pop up on a lot of lists my number 102 oh oh look at that motherfuckers we're getting getting segues yeah we're good segues automatically in there we just needed two hours and then we'd be excellent at this. you know what's great about about the segue though is the fact that i've explained how good of a segue it is that's no longer i think it's still a good segue i agree 102 2008's Waltz with Bashir. Another good comedy. It was a amu- it was very amusing. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was hilarious. Um, yeah, no, in in no way, shape or form, a comedy. Uh, you don't think so? Yeah, no. Um, dealing mostly with a a war documentary. Dealing with um, I, I feel like I have to explain this movie because it's like well, a movie it, I don't think a lot yeah, of people have seen. Explain it and then kind of tell me where your um tell me a little bit where you're coming from in terms of like, I, I totally get why this would be on somebody's list. Yeah. Like no. it's, it's a perfect list movie. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested in like your experience with seeing it like the first time. Um, so yeah, so, uh, Walter Bashir directed by Ari Folman, who was uh, a member of the, um, Lebanese army. Yeah. Lebanon. Yeah. Um, basically dealing with the, the massacre of Palestinians in uh you know and his his complicity in in, in that massacre um it's a documentary in, in in the very simplest form but it's it's told as an animated film um just one of those movies that is is a, is good for being a gut punch and yeah 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 2008 is when it came out and and I have this weird tradition of of rushing to see all the movies I think could potentially be nominated for Oscars or are nominated for Oscars because I'm a fucking nerd. No, we both do the same thing. That's why um, we're having this podcast. Yeah, no shit. And 2008 was a year full of movies that did nothing, I think. Um, you're the curious case of Benjamin Button. Oh, some dog no, yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, when Revolutionary Road is one of the movies that I think is one of the more solid movies of the year, you know you can have a problem. Because that movie stunk. No, I think it's fine. But, you know. Are we having a conversation about that later? Is it on the list? I don't even remember. Oh, okay. I doubt it. I no. It's I one of the it's, rare movies yeah. that Leonardo DiCaprio ruined, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, but um, it's it's a documentary that's that's definitely punctuated mostly by its by its subject. You know, it's it's an extremely competently directed documentary. But I to me the thing that that was the best gut punch um, was was there's an early scene uh, addressing PTSD. Um, one of the doctors is, is talking about PTSD and they talk about a soldier dealing with um, the Hippodrome mm-hmm. when going into the Hippodrome and how he saw everything through a camera lens. Mm-hmm. Everything was removed. Everything was, was done um, basically through this filter. And then when he sees all the dead horses in the Hippodrome and he, he asks what happened and whatnot, he says that's when the lens was removed. And so this entire movie, I'm like, Usually I'm a, a big fan of like building to a fucking ending, like you know, go fuck yourself. Yeah, that. yeah. You know, this entire movie is based on the fact of Ari Floman going, um, you know, knowing it was a part of this, but not really feeling it, and so it's told as an animated movie, and and there's that kind of like filter the yep. entire time, told everywhere else like a regular documentary, but in the very end, 
when he sees the aftermath of all the Palestinians being killed, that's when it cuts mm-hmm. to real life footage. And it's like in that moment, which I thought was kind of like a good hallmark of like showing the PTSD and whatnot or showing like the fact of the, the complicity in it when it cuts the real life footage of women yeah. screaming. Well, and it's, and it removes that filter, it removes that filter of like yeah. an animated kind of like, like, I don't want to say fun movie, but it's definitely like there's, there's a lot of huge moments in it. Like the part where, where they fire upon a car, I think it could be a bunch of terrorists, oh, which yeah, ends yeah, up being yeah. a family. Yep. But still, it's animated, and still it's it's well, told through that filter. And because it's two thousand eight, so it's post um, it's post Waking Life, mm-hmm. so it has that kind of um, it's it's animated in that style too. Right, but it has that energy. It has a different energy than a documentary would have, even with the music, um, and even with like some of the choices for subject of the documentary. Um, it the animation kind of gives it this weird. I don't know, like untangible, removed energy. Yeah, like no, so exactly. you can enjoy it, but you don't like what they're they're describing is like un, really not enjoyable. No, yeah, it's 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 a it's a two hour documentary that is about a fucking awful subject. Sure, but it's, I mean, worse than that. I mean, you know, one of the great travesties of, of what's happened in a history of travesties in the region, kind of. Like highlighting that, and it could have been it could have been a perfectly fine documentary, like any other documentary done live yeah. action. But I think like what was interesting about it to me was was it's told through the the eye of the villain, almost. Well, the yeah, the idea that the villain is trying to kind of grapple with how he's a villain. Yeah, he understands that he's a villain, but like, what are the specific instances and events that led to him being classified as a villain? And that's, I mean, the thing that I. Um, when I was watching it, you know, they talk us a lot about the vision. Like he's been having this dream, um, and he doesn't remember remember it happening, mm-hmm. and he doesn't, um, and nobody that he he sees in the dream remembers it happening either. Um, but I think the movie's really good um, from the perspective that if the dream doesn't work, if the vision doesn't work, if it's not a worthy vision, then the movie doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and the vision is so worthy. Yeah, I know exactly. And so. I don't even want to say well-directed because I almost feel like you almost get the impression that the animation is kind of doing its own thing. Like that it's not being pushed forward by an animator's hand or a director or anything like that. It's 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 kind of, it's it's a very alive movie. movie. It's not a movie that that feels like it had had a constructed narrative. Like it it allowed the narrative to be, I mean, I think a lot of these movies that that were going to be, at least on my list are movies that mean something to me, blah, blah, blah. And like, mm -hmm. like obviously like, I go like Ghostbusters is fun, Bob. You know, to me, I'm like you don't necessarily need to see it. You can see it because it's fun. But like Walt's Best Year, I think is a movie a lot of people fucking skipped on because you know who would see this small little animated war documentary. But I think this is actually a movie that that matters. Like one of the few movies I'd say that that kind of matter. I think like, you should, and I think the problem, you know, this is more of a problem with our culture, I guess, is that we tend to move on from this stuff really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is this specific? <laughs> Mario's molted hand. Um, is this a specific? Is this specific event still happening? Obviously not. It's it's a, an event that it's over. Um, but it's, but it's is there? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Is there that that there's um, there's things like this still happening in life all the time, and we should be aware of them and be able to discuss them and analyze them and talk about them. And I think that's the you know one of the real beauties of the movie is that 
that's really what this guy is doing. He's analyzing his his role. He's not just saying, like, I'm a soldier, so I did this. He's kind of saying, like, you know, how did I get how did I get here? What you know, I already said it before, like what are the specific things? What are the spe- not even just like the specific specific events, like, oh I shot this guy or this guy shot at me or blah blah blah. But like the emotions. Yeah. Like what are the, what you know, um the tactile experience of being in war and how that led to him being on this rooftop like you know he was like alerting people that it was or he was sending up flares flares so they could know where to where to shoot exactly um and how does that make him a villain yeah which he acknowledges that he is he acknowledges you know i think um i i did something bad and everyone kind of tries to tell him, like, you just did what you were supposed to do. Oh, what's great about that, too, is he, he doesn't, doesn't buy it. He doesn't accept it. No, really not either. at all. Not at the end. Like, he's still, I don't know if it's deliberate, but he's still a fuck at the end. Like, he's, like, there's, I don't think there's any way around that. I, I peep, there's, 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 I mean, this is a bigger philosophical discussion of, you know, when are you just following orders and when are you an active participant? But it's definitely a movie that, that argues that. And I think he himself doesn't know when I wonder too you know we talked about this on story t- with storytelling a little bit about a director making a movie to kind of grapple with um, some of the ideas that are kind of going on in his head about who he is like I wonder if the ending of this movie kind of tries to signal um, not just kind of like the filter coming off of the movie but the filter coming off of him of himself oh, as no, well absolutely and that's that's why that's why I go back to the hippodrome comment like mm-hmm. like I think that's it, it doesn't really stand in the movie except has a focus of like the fact of you know he's 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 like i forgot what i did i don't remember any of it and then like when he's when you cut from the animation we cut from that major dimension of of separation to like well fuck these are you know everything you've seen has been animated but stuff that happened it's all yeah it's all and even it's been animated it's real interviews that were animated yeah it's no, real, exactly like it's, it's that we can laugh you know footage um so that's 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 what the hippodrome scene is important for is that ending and, and it's that's him slowly coming to terms with the fact that he was lighting flares so a bunch of men and children could be killed you know yeah like, like talking about like the young daughter in the rubble being like their own daughter yeah like, the hand yeah no exactly the hand and the curly hair it's just it's a killer i mean it's, it's just it's it's one of those movies where that's on my list because of of what it told but I don't necessarily know if it's because of the movie itself, but it's be, if it's not because of, of the events and like, and like it's, it's for as much as he's unwilling to, you know, Fulman's unwilling to maybe still accept blame. He's at least able to acknowledge it and kind of like present it to the audience. Well, I think he's working toward it. Yeah. yeah. I think when, especially in any kind of, and I don't know this, you know, anyone that happens to listen to this, that, was in the armed services or, you know, whatever can, ex- you know, express like more truth about this. But I think he's really kind of dealing. I think there's an indoctrination that's kind of at play in here because mm-hmm. it's, and it seems that everyone else that he served with has it too, where in that, like some people are very willing to go along with the idea that they were just following orders. They were just doing what they were supposed yeah, to yeah. do. This person was designated as the enemy. And so it was our job to kill them. And he, seems to be grappling with that idea that like I understand that 
that uh, makes a lot of sense. What's that mean? But I don't. I've got this thing inside of me that's not that's unable to reconcile. But the fact that, that I can't remember it means that there's a big part of me that doesn't fucking agree with that's, that. Well, exactly. That's trying to kind of push that away from him. Yeah, and if 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 you know, I'm if I just followed orders and I'm not guilty, then why am I feeling guilt? Mm. No. I mean, there's I there's not. <laughs> Multi-position. I guess we're kind of we're kind of more went off on the uh, the real life circumstances in the movie, but definitely a movie that one of the few movies that's going to be on my list. That I'm going to be like people should should watch. You should definitely see it, and I don't think it's difficult. If it's between this and a fish called Wanda, well, it's the best year. <laughs> if you can watch both, you know, watch both. Maybe watch a fish called Wanda afterwards, just so you can. I don't know. I feel like you want to wipe wanna, away the blame. No, you want to. I feel like you want to just kind of sit with Walt's with this year. Like I feel like you want to hang. Mm. I, I think that's. I think you, if you want to call it, no, a, I, I agree. If you want to call it a failing of the movie, I think it looks too good, sometimes. So like you know how in Twelve Years a Slave, people really criticize Steve McQueen for the fact that he like dramatized like the slave experience by yeah, having yeah. this like beautiful cinematography and stuff like that. Some of the images, the animated images in Waltz with Bashir are like, oh yeah, like mind has an animated film. It's it's unbelievable. It's amazing. I mean, but like, and that's you the feel thing, guilty that's for being like, well, that's beautiful. And that's the thing that's, that's but everyone's of, dying all the time. Yeah. And that's the thing that's, you know, like the fact that we're not even talking about the animation really, except like, so like, Oh, it looks like waking lifestyle. But the fact that like, but waking Mars life is an animated filmmaking. movie. This is a, it. this is a movie that is animated. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's that's, animated for a point. It's not, it's not uh, it, like the animation in the film is, is there for a purpose. I, I don't want to say a gimmick cause a gimmick underscores why it's there, but Mm-hmm. You know, the animation is beautiful, but it doesn't matter in in relation to what the story is being told. Yeah. So that's that's my 102, um, Waltz of Bashir. Definitely a movie you should go see. Your 102, also another pretty heavy film. Yeah, it's actually one of the things I want to talk about with my, with my 102. And uh, my 102 is Groundhog Day, directed by Harold Ramis. Harold Ramis. What year is that again? Uh, that is 93, February 12th. <sighs> So yeah, Bill Murray plays Phil Connors. He is a weatherman in Pittsburgh, I believe, and oh, yeah. he is traveling to Punxsutawney, PA, with Pittsburgh the magic a- Chris oh. Elliott yeah. and with Andy McDowell. The less, the less magic. Andy She's McDowell. pretty good in this, um, and he ends up reliving the same day over and over and over again, Groundhog Day. Um, a, hilarity ensues. A tale that's, that would I don't know. Is this is this one of the first movies that kind of does this trope? This, what? this this fucking day lived over and over again. I have no idea, but I doubt I, any of them. I mean, it's the first one that matters. It's the first one that matters, and I actually think it's probably if there's more of them, I actually think it's probably the most complicated one because it's very specifically supposed to be funny. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be very funny, and it is most of the time hilarious, but it's also really, really, really dark. Well, and I don't want to go into like the the extra film aspects of it. But like, this is one of those movies where like, kind of like reading the backstory of like what Ramus was doing with him. Uh-huh. Like some of the actual beliefs that Ramus has that he experienced kind of is fucking fun. Cause like it is makes it? it, it makes it even darker. I mean, I'm not, we're not in this podcast going to go into like, well, I mean, I'll like just what say we're doing, but like, like I think Harold Ramus said originally the plan had been like 10,000 years. He was stuck. In the that's same awesome. Day, and like, like fucking, you know what's weird? Well, maybe is that somebody that said that. It's maybe not ten thousand years, but he's clearly <clears throat> somebody. Somebody said I think somebody like figured out to do all the shit he learned. He'd have to at least take ten years, right? And I think the beauty of the movie is that it kind of suggests that it could have been ten years. Yeah, there's, there's like there's no. It's uh, not a lazy movie. That's an echo. It could be a lazy movie, but it's not a lazy movie. Yeah, like they re, he really goes. 
he really seems to make the point that he's been doing this forever. Mm. And, you know, the fact that the movie ebbs and flows through, you know, um, moments of hilarity and moments of just really, like, depression um, is is evidence of that. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I think is really interesting is that this was came out in 1993. It's rated PG. He kills himself four times in this movie. Like, they show him killing himself four times. And it's it's not, like... I guess it's suggested in the sense that, like, blood doesn't shoot out of his head or anything like that. But you see him in a morgue at one point. He I mean, jumps off a building. He runs in front of a car. He drops a toaster in the in in the tub. He drives off a cliff. He drives off a cliff and yeah. explodes. <laughs> like, um, they're not... This is not a suggestion. Like, it's... He kills himself. And it's just... It's, you know, juxtaposed with this really funny idea that he's you know, gonna learn how to play piano really well. And He's I, gonna save all these people like say, from choking and from, you know, I would say dying. also that um like of its time in ninety three, like that the suicide part of it is dark, but like kinda funny. Uh, it's, it's funny, time, sure. It's, in its time it's funny. What I think is not funny is the old man he's trying to save. Sure. But that's, I think that's the the true like like call mark of like, you know, you're or, I had one thing written down for Groundhog Day, and that's like existential. And I think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a perfect kind of like existential film. Sure. In the sense that he controls himself. I mean, he's out of control of his destiny, but in the end, like, you kind of get the idea of the decisions he makes leads to like his ability to like break the cycle. Um, but when he's trying to have any sort of influence, a greater influence in anybody else's life, it does nothing. Like, no matter what he does, you know, housing the, the homeless man, feeding the homeless man soup, that guy fucking dies right well there's an like that i think that's one of the darker perhaps aspects of the film is that like the complete arbitrariness of of what's happening to him like so when we see him you perceive that he's doing good things for a long time like and he's not it's not like he just started doing good things the night before like you know he yeah and he's doing, you know he's, he's doing been, good things like he's doing things like not saintly things, but things that like a really fucking Fred Rogers type of person would do, and he's still waking up the he next still day. Doesn't, yeah, I mean, it doesn't. You don't even know if like it's necessarily his good behavior or his lessons learned got him out of it. Like, it's kind of there. No, it almost like, just seems like it. I it think is, at the end, it like, just seems like it, it, it ran its course. Yeah, it's just like well, whatever. Um, but it's I don't. And again, this is one of those movies where I'm not sure exactly what the um the message is to me, or I'm not sure. Specifically, what I take away from this, from a, as as far as a film goer, but I remember seeing it very young, and I remember even then recognizing that this is a much more complicated movie than it lets on. Well, no, it's I, not just a comedy with Bill Murray where he relives like the same day over and over and over again. It really digs into some of those like existential questions about like who, like what the hell are we supposed to be doing here? Like if I if I live a good life, like what does that ultimately mean? You know, and versus like, living a, a bad life. Like, yeah, and, like, obviously, he becomes a better person at the end. And who knows if it's just because of learned experience or, you know, if it's, like, that was a part of it. But it doesn't necessarily tell you that. That's that's an interesting concept. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually say, I don't know, I know, you, you I, I, it doesn't show up on my list. Um, fucking spoilers. But, like, this is definitely, like, one of my favorite tropes in movies is this kind of, like, time recycling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Edge of Tomorrow does it as well. I think does it actually successfully, too. Is that on your list? No, Edge of Tomorrow's not on my list. Um, 
but it's 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 a it's a cool concept that's that's been explored a lot um like recently happy death day did mm. it too which is fucking that's fine that's an okay movie. But, but I don't know if those movies go as deep as... No, 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 God, no. Which God is no. weird. Um, which is weird to say that a Bill Murray comedy from 1993, you know, directed by Harold Ramis... Edge of Tomorrow's a Doug Liman movie. Doug Liman movies don't go deep. But, no. but they're fun. And, like, that's that's the thing is, like, this is a, a fun... Like, you take away it is everything... Fun. You take away Even everything with the darkness, yeah. Like, you, but you take away the darkness, you take away, like, the actual depth to it, and I think it's the only movie that presents this sort of, you know, scenario that, that actually has that sort of depth. Mm-hmm. And um, it is inherently fun. It's one of the more fun movies. Yeah, like, it's, it's very it's, fun. It's, it's, it's a good time. Like, like fucking people still like do the Ned Ryerson. Like, it's eminently <laughs> quotable. Um, it features Michael Shannon's first performance. Yeah. Yeah. WrestleMania! Yeah, it's very good. Michael Shannon, one of the world's most <laughs> yeah, appreciated but, actors now. I don't want to say underappreciated, but like I think he's, he's un- finally getting the, the He's underappreciated in the sense that he still has he still gets shit to play. Yeah, so even he when to be like in, he has to be general fucking Zod. Even when he's like in Oscar winning movies, he's they're still giving him garbage. You know how many Oscars he has? Zero. Sure. That's, that's he's got a couple nominations. Alright. He should have beat so Ledger. That's for what? For Revolutionary Road? Yeah. That's the only good thing I about don't Revolutionary think so. Road. That's we'll have that conversation. Why are we this is the second later. time we're talking about Revolutionary Road. Yeah. Get it out of there. All right. So that's my 102, uh, Groundhog Day, which leads us to our 101. These are our last two movies. Um, my mo- 101 is The Master. A movie I have not seen for a while, so I'm not going to be talking too much okay. about it. I'm going to be asking a lot of questions during this time. Paul Thomas Anderson, 2012. Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Amy, Amy Adams. Lord Dern. Other people. A lot of other people. Some other people. None of them matter, though. Really. No. Um, this movie is on my list. It's 101. I love this movie a lot. I love everything about it. Um, it didn't make the top 100, though, because I'm not sure I understand it yet. I'm not sure what and the that, hell it's doing. That's my thing. I, I When I saw it, fuck, I saw it probably. I saw it in 2012. Yeah, me too. Um, I didn't necessarily dislike it i didn't like it i didn't care for it i liked inherent vice more yeah this this was a grower the only reason i say inherent vice is because that's weirdly a movie that is one of my favorite paul thomas anderson movies but like it's the one after i just don't feel like it's i just i I left it feeling nothing i left it feeling like yeah of a a necessary to see it again i don't want to talk about phantom thread too much because i think it's on your list so i don't know i don't know maybe (laughs) it might be (laughs) on his list um, but I feel like Phantom Thread and this movie are kind of related in a way, in the sense that I don't think he um, went into them with the idea of writing a movie. I think he went into them with the idea of a character and then wrote a movie around a character. Mm. Um, I think he has two characters in this movie in, you know, Lancaster Dodd, Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lancaster Dodd, yeah. and then um, Joaquin Phoenix's character. Um, in the Freddie Quell character. Freddie Quell. And... Um, their relation I know the the movie kind of hinges on their relationship, but their relationship is so complicated and odd and weird and unresolved that and I don't want to say like I dislike this movie or I had trouble with this movie because like the ending doesn't resolve because I, that doesn't really matter to me that the ending doesn't resolve, but their relationship never resolves the relationship literally doesn't go anywhere it kind of it's it illuminates itself within you know 
10 minutes of their meeting when they have that in that interview and they share yeah, exactly. the, you know, they share the cocktail of like the, the fuel and like all the shit. Um, and that's just, it's just kind of their Best cocktail ever made the whole thing. Yeah. Um, the movie is like unconscionably beautiful. I oh, mean, no, it's, absolutely. There's, it's, there's no question about that. It's unbelievable. And the score, um, I mean, is equally just like transfixing, and there's, there's, these per- are all these, these these are all the things like about Paul Thomas. These Anderson are Paul Thomas Anderson things, things, right? There's never a movie where you're like Paul Thomas Anderson directed something. This movie looks was, like shit. It was fine. And I mean, it sounds fucking weird. He, like not talk about Phantom Thread, but you didn't even need a cinematographer for that. No. Hmm. Um. I think Joaquin Phoenix is unbelievable, and almost in a way that is unfair to like really talk about because he's just kind of in a different place. Did he get nominated for this? I know they all got nominated. They all got nominated. Amy, I know Amy Adams and Joaquin Phoenix and Hoffman and him, I think got nominated. Okay. And it didn't win, obviously, because what won in 2012? Something else. Argo. Is it the Argo year? Probably. Argo. Fucking Argo. Um, Let's go. Wait, Argo. Fuck yourself. Yeah. Argo. Fuck yourself. Um, I just don't. I don't. I don't know what this movie is supposed to be. So I don't know what it's. I know. I understand. Like Lancaster Dodds, like you know the, the uh, you know L. Ron Hubbard guy. Yeah, but that and, that doesn't even seem to really matter here at all. Well, I think the thing I wanted to pack with this is is this is definitely, you know, bringing in outside the podcast when we're talking about making this podcast. This is definitely, I think, one of the Paul Thomas Anderson films you talk about the most. Um. Me? The one that you, you seem to come back on, yeah, a lot, and I would assume because I'm trying to reconcile it against his other movies. Yeah, yeah, like how does this movie fit in? Because I think people want to compare a lot of times. There will be blood to this, but I think there will be blood has a much clearer vision. Well, yeah, that's and there will be blood has an there will be blood has like a very clear narrative and like something it wants to accomplish. I'm not sure this movie knows at all what it wants to accomplish, except for showing, think... for showing, two sides of the human experience. In Freddie Quells and Lancaster Dodd. But do those even match up? I don't even know if those match up. And, like, that can be compared. That's, like, a fairly good and metaphor I, for our podcast. I guess that was, like, that was my problem with it. It was, like, there was a lot of disjunction in The Master when I, when I saw it that I think is then handled better later on in Inherent Vice. And I don't know if it's because he has... Um, the master is not based on anything, right? Master is just no. Just it's just his, his idea, yeah. Well, and yeah, and you know, he has pension coming back from him with, with inherent vice. But I think like there's a lot of those same kind of themes of like disjunction and like what the fuck can do with this. Um, that is held together by some sort of thread, and I I feel like the master doesn't have that. I feel like the master is kind of just like an actor showcase, but in different movies but i feel like i get the impression every time i watch the movie that he's doing it on purpose like that it's disjointed for a reason and i think the thing that i have a problem with is that i don't know what that reason is yeah and, so and i think my problem is I, I don't think he has like i i felt right like, like i think i think it's just it's something he failed on they didn't have a reason for it when everyone goes to the scene you know this the scene with him on the boat when he gets you know when he is asking the questions and he's smacking himself in the face and yeah, like yeah. all this other stuff. But I think a really much more, I, there's two scenes for me that are really much more interesting, which is the pig fuck scene when like that guy infiltrates their meeting and starts asking like kind of doubting questions about yeah. like the idea of it. And then he just yells at him. Like he just calls him pig fuck, like at the end of yelling at him. 
because there's to that moment you kind of got the impression that like Lancaster Dodd was really together and like really had it together but then in that one word I'm gonna say pig fuck is one word because he calls him a pig fuck oh I'm sure it's hyphenated <laughs> it's like pig hyphen fuck um that there's a there's an unhingedness quality to him as well mm. and then when they're in the jail together and Freddie Quells is literally tearing the jail apart with his head yeah, yeah. and his neck and Lancaster Dodd's just sitting there it's interesting and I don't know if this is true but it's how I perceived it the idea that inside Lancaster Dodd is doing the exact same thing but it he, a level of control but it. he just can't like he's not gonna let that stuff out while Freddie is free to let that let that stuff out and I think um, it's something that I heard Mark Marin say on when he talked to Paul Thomas Anderson about um, you know this movie he's like oh why don't they just fuck are we talking about rival podcast now we're talking about rival podcast yeah, yeah that's right um, he's like, like coming for you Marin <laughs> he's like oh why don't they just fuck and he's just like oh yeah it would have been better if they did, and it's like, but I'm like, I'm not even sure that's what, that's what they, Anderson said, or that's what, yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson is like, maybe it would have been better if they was had he, done that. Was he like, fucking he was just joking, joking. yeah. Okay. But it's like, you know, puts it in your head, like, would that have been better? Is that really what's happening here? Are they attracted to each other? And but I like, think it's more the idea that he's, if anyone's attracted to anything, I think it's Lancaster Dodd being attracted to some of, of, of Freddie Quell's freedoms that he's no, allowed. Exactly, I would agree with that. Like, like that, but, but that, it's interesting because the freedom. That do you need is animalistic freedom. It's not real freedom. He is need, trapped. Do you need uh, like 130 some minutes to say that? Like I felt like to designate like the complete and utter like dejection of like Freddie Quells' character. I don't know. I feel like you have that pretty much from when he fucks the sand. Yeah, yeah. the sand woman. That this guy is like not correct. Yeah. So just, is this really what he is? This what Lancaster Dodd wants? Does he also want to fuck a sand lady? Like is that really what he's looking to do? Yeah. Much I don't I don't think so. I wouldn't say yes. So what aspect of his freedom is he really is he really gravitated towards? I'm not I don't know. And I'm not sure if the movie knows. Or just like the expression at least, like that ability to let it out. Right. Well and I think that and the Amy Adams character is interesting as well because I don't think I get the sense that she's not genuine either. In the sense that she needs, well, that's she big, needs I these things to big, kind of line up to justify like what she's lost as like a human. And I, I think that's the big thing of the film too, at least from like I said, my initial interpretation of it is like even though Quell is is open to kind of do these animalistic urges, like it doesn't feel authentic either. Like like everything kind of has like this air of inauthenticity to it. Like he's just trying it out. Yeah. No. Exactly. Like 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 none of them have anything figured out. Maybe. I don't know. And then, uh, and I think that's the comp. Uh, it's it's a hard movie to find. Like, like obviously, you know, fucking idiots will say like it doesn't matter what the artist is trying to say. It's your interpretation of it. But those people are dummies. Yeah. Yeah. Take that. I'm half audience. Um, but I don't know what's trying to be said, and and that is my major my has always been my major problem with the master is I don't know what he's doing with it i don't know what anything is being said yeah i perhaps maybe the difference between you and me and that is that like that question really gets under my skin and like i throw it to the side i'm just like oh I, yeah yeah it, I like i think that's i don't have time for that that's, I, I got Fortnite to play that's <laughs> that's why it's right in like you know it's the 101 yeah. it's not on the list because i don't get Which, it but, but I, it's it's just it's just in my it's just stuck in your brain 
I mean, and that's kind of what the podcast is about. But it's how so, this stuff just lodges itself in your psyche. It's, it's so, and I would say that it's so competently directed and so competent, like it's an incredibly well crafted film. Oh my god! Like there's there's no denying that. And it's it feels weird seeing a Paul Thomas like to me at least a Paul Thomas Anderson failing. Well, but if he's failing, he's failing better than everybody else well, fails. No, exactly. I mean, like other you know, which is why directors I, yeah. of his generation do not craft opening scenes that don't even have a character in it. That's just the foam in the wake of a boat set to music. Yeah, no, that exactly. looks like that looks, and that sells. You know, maybe Malik. Well, that's I mean, and so that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to talk about too. I think this is a very Maliky movie. No, that's why I kind of bring it up, too. and it's kind of. Um, it's just of, like, kind of searching around, and even when, um, you know, at the end of the movie, when he's talking to his ex-girlfriend's mother, and he's just like standing on her stoop, like the way that it's shot, there's like a searching quality to the whole thing, like mm. this whole expanse of world, like Freddy's confined himself to like his head for his whole life, and now there's this weird expansive universe open to him, and it sucks for him that he kind of goes back into his head because yeah. for a moment. It almost seemed like he was actually free of, like, I don't know, post-traumatic stress, if we want to do a yeah, post-traumatic stress movie or whatever. I think we talked about that enough with my... With, uh, but it's 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 just really year. something. And Johnny Greenwood's... It might be Johnny Greenwood's best score. Nah, I don't know if I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. So that's my 101, which leads us to Mario's 101. My 101, another auteur filmmaker who has two excellent films under his tableau. Under his tableau? Whatever. His belt? Do you want to just say belt? His belt. He actually has three. Three. I'd I'd call Six Shooter a movie. It's only 30 minutes long, but it's fucking great. By the time he makes this movie? Uh, Yeah, no. I'm I'm saying Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is kind of a failing. But um, anyways... (laughs) My number 101 is Seven Psychopaths, the 2012 Martin McDonnell yeah. movie. One of probably the, I would say, the greatest living playwright. Um, and probably. I don't know if we can make that comment here. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen enough plays. You know what? But fuck it. I'll, I'll say it right now. <laughs> Guys, this is, why we're drink- this, right is, now. this is why we're drinking while we're doing this. So, so we I can, can justify make, these I can comments. Make nonsense claims and like defend it with no really evidence. <laughs> Um, no, Seven Psychopaths. Uh, another movie of his is a movie I, I appreciate more. And that movie is not Three Billboards. So, spoilers. Uh, spoilers. Uh, but yeah, Seven Psychopaths. Um, I don't know. There's there's something. It's it's it's. I I've always appreciated a narrative that's told in whatever way it needs to be told and. Do we want to be sure we want to call what's happening here a narrative? Disjointed, as it may be, but it's definitely telling various stories. I don't know if that stories work towards a tapestry of an overall plot. Obviously. I like stories. Um, but I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I, I think Martin McDonald's trying to make an anti-violence movie with Seven Psychopaths. Huh? And I think... It, How so? I, I I see your your go with that. There. I'm interested in no, anti-violence. No. Okay, so you obviously have a very incredibly violent, uh, not incredibly, but a fairly violent film mm-hmm. with with filled with violent people. Yeah, um, psychopaths. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, 
And you obviously have Martin McDonald's kind of like stand in with, with Colin Farrell's character, in my opinion. Yep. I feel like I feel like you're you're sitting here disagreeing with all this. No, I'm listening. That's okay. I think it I think it's I think he I think Colin Farrell is Martin McDonald's oh, stand yeah, no, no. in. Like I don't think I don't think I don't think there's any question to that. No, 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 no. no. But um to me it ultimately comes down uh, my my interpretation of it and the reason I love this film is I typically don't give a shit about plot. I like allegories, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I like I like things that kinda like play to emotion. Yeah, we're on the same boat. We're on the same page with that. Um and everything plays to me to that that final speech from Hans. That speech from Hans where he's kind of like, you know, during this I believe it's not it's not Ray, but Colin Farrell's character. And man, we are gonna be much better at naming characters in movies <laughs> well, when we're sh- not doing ten fucking films. We'll make sure that we come with like a list of who everybody oh, is. So Yeah, we're only gonna be doing one movie after this yeah. per episode or two movies. Two per movies episode. per episode, yeah. Um Colin Farrell's character, I have the IMDB page up, Marty. My <laughs> Martin Farinon. Huh. Oh, holy shit. That is not Martin McDonald. Yeah, it is. But anyways, um, he, he's writing that script about the seven psychopaths, but he's, he's, he's reached a writer's block. Um, at the end of the film, when his friends Billy and Hans are dead, having you know done this comedy of errors, Hans kind of does this entire redemption speech of the, of, of the Vietnamese psychopath mm-hmm. throughout the story. And kind of tells this really convoluted kind of terrible story like the terrible script idea like mm-hmm. like it's it's it, the story doesn't make sense the entire this well, vietnamese terrorist goes to kill a bunch of vietnam war veterans and ends there's, up with a prostitute yeah, and he there's gets a prostitute there. who speaks vietnamese because she learned it at yale yeah, yeah, yeah and it turns out he's actually just a buddhist monk self-emulating himself at the beginning of the vietnam war and I, what i found interesting is, is like the, it's a nice tie-in for this movie is is in the beginning you know, there, there's a story of the Quaker, which is Hans. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, he's, he's a Quaker who's has a biracial marriage. His daughter is murdered. He then, he and his wife, it turns out, make a life course to kill this man, but not, you know, not break their Quaker spirit, not quite their Quaker religious, but basically drive the man to suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of juxtaposed, you know, with, with the violence of the Vietnamese man when he's going in to kill the prostitute in the room full of Vietnam War veterans, juxtaposed with how Hans then reacts to his wife's own murder at the hands of Woody Harrelson's mm-hmm. Charlie. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's, 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 this, it's this evolution from begetting violence with violence to begetting violence with acceptance yeah and i think that's done a lot there like like it's it's done better in other movies we may talk about uh-huh written by similar people <laughs> directed by similar people similarly named that might be set in certain belgium cities it's a world cup movie <laughs> but um but this entire like I think the thing that Martin McDonald does does extraordinarily well just in his plays and, and in film is, you know, egregious amounts of violence told in a tale that's that's counteracting violence. And this is this is funnier than in Bruges to me. Like like in Bruges yeah. is funny kind of like in a in an ironic way, but in Bruges also is like a fucking gut punch. And this movie's not a, really a gut punch. Well, this movie's 
Oh, I see. Telling a serious message, but a lot more fun. I don't know. I feel like this movie was a gut punch. I hadn't seen this movie until you told me. No, this movie is is a gut punch, but like it's not as much. I mean, you've seen seen Imbruge. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like this movie is only. um, I think Imbruge is supposed to be funny. I'm not sure how much any of this. We're not going to talk about that in the future, but. No, we're definitely not. Um, I'm not sure how funny any of this is supposed to be. I think it is funny. No, I think the like there's the entire graveyard scene. Oh, the graveyard. See, that's the thing. I and I just the gra- the graveyard scene is actually probably my least favorite scene. I'll agreed. In the movie, because um, I just don't think it's. I don't think it's necessary, especially when you have Sam Rockwell kind of like owning this movie. Just like, just let Sam Rockwell say it. I don't think Sam Rockwell without having to. I don't need to see it. Uh, you know I what I mean? I don't think he trusts Sam Rockwell, Mark McDonald, necessarily. Which is weird because he gave him a bunch of awesome stuff to say. So I think the interesting part of the podcast, like we've said, is 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 the the influence it had in, in how we interpret mm-hmm. the art form, and um, you know, we, Seven Psychopaths comes out in two thousand twelve, two thousand ten. He comes out with the Hand Against Bokan, which kind of speaks similar. It's a it's a play, it's a play. on Broadway. Um, speaks similar to those levels of violence, and like your response to violence, but it also stars Rockwell and Walken hmm. in very similar roles. Rockwell is kind of like this ludicrous joke character and, you know, Walken's playing kind of this more dour character that he plays in Hans. Um, and I don't know if it's just something from the performance I saw, but Rockwell didn't deliver. Exactly. Like, Rockwell didn't deliver the same hmm. kind of punch. And that's why I kind of feel like like his character, like, I, I love this movie. I mean, it just, like I said, just barely misses my 100, mm-hmm. kind of like the master does for you. But I feel like Rockwell's character is unnecessary, almost. Like, not unnecessary. I, don't, I feel like there's more that could have been done with um, with the Billy character. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like he, he wanted to cast Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I think and, he... And he does, because, because he knows he can get Sam, that performance out Sam Rockwell. He does later. Yeah. I wonder if... I, so I'm interpreting this movie. I, like again, I haven't seen it until you asked me to, to see it. Um, I, I demanded you. See it. <laughs> I really interpreted this movie as kind of uh, like a uh, um, a meditation on creativity. Yeah, and that no, that's a big part. And uh, like I think that's where come like some of the, like there's a lot of people on fire in this movie, either that look like they're on fire or in front of fires or actually on fire. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of. Um, like an explosion, uh, like it represents a kind of like explosion of creativity. Um, Cause I don't know how else to justify all the fire imagery mm-hmm. and how everything is on fire. Like, you know, there's two people burned to death. Well, see, and that's, there's, you know, um, then there's a couple of scenes where like someone's like just standing like right in front of a fire and it looks like they're burning to death. Um, and then they, you know, it's just, I didn't say there's more than two characters. Some, a couple, couple people in that graveyard scene burned to death. Right, and then there's, but I, they're not like, but like real obviously characters. the Zodiac yeah. Killer and and the, the Buddhist monk, the Buddhist are the, monk. The ones yeah. that matter. Um, but I just think it's it's interesting in the fact that like when they're talking about the idea that he's writing a movie is present through the whole thing, and even after like people are dead, and like they realize that some of the things that he has thought were stories are real things, which brings like a gravity to them, mm. and even after he hears all these stories about dead people, you know, from Tom Waits. Um, and a lot of dead people from Tom Waits. A lot of dead people from Tom Waits. He still is writing this movie. His main concern is writing the movie. 
Um, and even when so when they go to the desert and they're like, oh, we'll all write movies. It's like, well, why are they all writing movies? Like, significant things are supposed to be happening to them. Like, how can writing this movie be, like, the most important thing? And it kind of carries out through the whole thing, like, Sam Rockwell's going to end the movie how he wants to end the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of a different... I don't know. I feel like it needs more. It needs its own like book, almost to kind of analyze like the subtlety in this thing. But the idea that like what's ser- like what's important, like what's serious, like is writing this movie important? Is is um, Woody Harrelson's character getting his dog back? Like, is that actually important? No, I think it's. I do, I do that, think that's just driving. I think like a lot of what he does is just driving action. And so I don't even. I don't even. I don't even know if that's true though. I wonder if it's driving metaphor more than it's driving action. Well, I mean, like driving action to get the metaphor. Um, so I, like, I, don't know, I don't know anything don't, about Martin McDonough. So I almost wanted to interpret this movie as like. So you know how it's. It, he doesn't even end up with writing block. He like starts with writing block. He has the name yeah. Seven Psychopaths, and he can't get past Seven Psychopaths. He. he I almost the entire like the ads filed and everything. Right. I almost want to say like this movie is, he wrote this movie in a reaction to like a similar experience where like he couldn't get out of his own way. So he just kind of wrote this. And see, like that's interesting because to me then he kind of just rewrote the same movie. Like he's kind of rewriting the same movie then. Well, I would, I would, I would wonder then because I didn't see, um, Behanding. Well, yeah, no, I'm. I, well, Behanding was was you know a play, but like, of the three features he's written, they've all been contemplations in some way or another of violence or revenge or kind of like wrath. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I kind of like took the creative stroke more as this ability to kind of go with an absurdist route. Um, because I think for all the pretenses of in Bruges, and Bruges is still kind of inapproachable in ways. Why do you say that? I suppose we shouldn't talk about it now. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, no. But just in Bruges is still, there's a weird kind of intellectual absurdity to in Bruges. Mm-hmm. But it's That's, still just kind of a regular movie. It is, but but we'll, we'll talk about it later. But I, I kind of feel like more than in Bruges, I guess, but less than three billboards, Seven Psychopaths is kind of like a very American approachable contemplation on how we see violence. I guess so. And but it's curious though because like so I wrote down this quote from that Sam when they're in the desert by them and they're talking about their movies and um and Sam Rockwell says to um when Colin Farrell yeah when Billy's talking to Marty. Yeah, he's like why don't we change the name to seven lesbians who overcome all their um spacey shit and two of them are black. Like is that a, so I mean basically that sounds to me like a comment on like like a Hollywood thing, yeah. which led me to think that if it's comment on Hollywood and it's comment about like this character's relation to ho- like relationship to Hollywood or even stories relationship to Hollywood and how Hollywood either can't support stories or that stories are kind of like stories in Hollywood like don't go together anymore like they don't want real stories they just want people shooting each other in shootouts. Like, oh, that's a perfect spot for a, a final sh- a shootout. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Hollywood wants X, and you want to give them Y, and then you end up with, like, seven psychopaths. Well, that's which is thing. just kind of like a hodgepodge of, like, stuff, like, kind of I mean, narratively placed, you know, provocatively in the and movie. And that's the thing. That, that's the thing that I think, like, why it... I don't know if it's so much about... I don't know if I agree with you that's about Warriors Black and more about kind of, like, that, that thought process and violence is that... 
a lot of the violence. Like besides, um, besides the shootout, you know, that Sam Rockwell shootout, mm-hmm. a lot of the violence is kind of done abruptly, and there's not a lot of build to it. There's not a lot of there's it's not it's not an action. It's not an movie. action movie. No, no, no. Um, but it's definitely kind of like feeding into the genre of action, kind of like feeding into like what it should be, like saying that you know this type of like he's definitely in the vein of trying to write an action movie. Yeah. Um, but I also think he's trying to undo some things. So like, you know, the opening scene with Michael Stuhlbarg and Michael Pitt, mm-hmm. um, that strikes me as a very Tarantino-esque scene. Yeah, yeah. That it almost seems like Martin McDonough's just being like, nope, like you're all done. I'm going to, now I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. Like he's just like stopping that. Like I was like, I'm not doing that. And so that's, that's kind of, and I, I guess I could see. I guess I could see maybe it not being so much a contemplation as writer's block, but maybe a contemplation on the expectations. I mean, you know, in Bruges was a pretty substantial film when it came out in terms of. It was a big deal, yeah. Like Martin McDonald being a big up and comer, sure. And like again, once again, I don't want this to become a podcast where we're just making fucking exploitation exploration. Uh, Making random guesses mm-hmm. on on what the intention of, of the filmmakers are, um, maybe maybe is him saying what what he expected people, what he expected, what he thought people expected from him as a follow up. Mm. Um, yeah, I think and I, I think the I think probably why it falls where it is on your list versus, uh, and you know, similarly to where the master falls on my list is that it could literally be any of those things. Yeah. And I think the movie supports kind of like a reading of, of a lot of those things. I mean, it's a movie about writing that features dozens of people getting killed. Yeah. And it's, which doesn't usually happen in movies about writing. Yeah. And it's also like, it can be seen as both like an exploration on the state of violence, blah, 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 film, media, or life in general. It can be also, I mean, I disagree with that point, like what you said, but it could also be seen as that exploration on writer's block and like the state of creativity or the state of what's expected of you as a creator or as an artist. Yeah. Um, or I think it's, it's probably, maybe it's a little bit of both in that, like what's created of you as uh, an artist in terms of like specificity in the thing that you're supposed to be doing, like kind of how you said, like the expectations, like you should be making this kind of movie. I think I should be making this kind of movie. Yeah. We saw Brendan Gleeson's fucking legs separate in Bruges. We want to see more of that in, and he wanted to do maybe something else or he, you know, it's sound, it's a, it's a confused, it's an interestingly confused Kind of like somebody working on his demons. Right. Which seems to be kind of like the running theme of this podcast. that's, That's something, that's something I never, you know, I never saw with it. So, which is I, and I, the violence is so prevalent, but the other thing in it that's also very prevalent is the writing. Well, what's interesting too about that movie? Well, I agree the writing is prevalent, but the violence that matters, I think, the violence that's going to be the worst violence, the violence that's like the most visceral. Now, if this was an like an actual decision, or if it's just like somebody shying, or just McDonald shying away from. I guess important violence, but like the, the death of his wife, death of Han's wife, um, Billy's being, I mean, Billy gets shot in the head and the death of the child are all kind of told like a lot of people are go- dying in very violent ways, mm-hmm. explicitly shown on screen. And those ones are pulled back. Like the ones that were violence has a real affect. Mm. And I, I don't know if that's intentional or yeah. if that's just done. I, I mean, I think when you look at it that way, it, it like speaks to an idea um, or a commentary 
or that it is a commentary on like the the culture of violence mm. and like what like um how violence is perceived in these like things and it's interesting because it's, there's a lot of flashbacks and there's a lot of violence shown um that's you know pa- uh, you know past violence yeah where they kind of really dig into like the past violence and then like the ramifications of the past violence are framed like with the zodiac i mean that's a beautiful shot like after he's all burned sitting at the table um that's a very you know well lit perfect shot he seems to like to do shoot scenes in just burned locations because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. they have that i mean they have that in like three billboards as well where people are hanging out where things have burned he also likes to seem to burn people yeah which is <laughs> interesting too i mean three billboards is based around a yeah person being burned so there you go um, um it's just what i do want to mention one thing about that though is just the fact that like we need more tom waits in movies i think that that seven psychopaths really shows that we need more tom waits well it's a perfect usage of tom waits it's a perfect usage of christopher walken it's a perfect usage of everyone but Abby Cornish, and that's just because there's no perfect usage. Well, she's Abby just, Cornish. I don't even know what she's doing in there. No, I mean, three billboards is the same thing. Yeah. What is she doing? I think he just likes to, ha- he's not married to her, is she? No. I think, I think he just likes recasting the same people. Yeah. I'm, right. doing the, I'm doing the face of, like, what do I know? I don't know. I forgot you don't see faces in podcasts. He'll call us up afterwards and be like, <laughs> I just, I do like you just cast her. Yeah, what the fuck are you going to do about it? We just like, cut out. She's very good in all the scenes you didn't see. We're like, oh, okay, Martin McDonald, don't I kill us. It's weird, though, because he's... And that's I, I almost want it to be a... I'll comment on two things. The um, the music director in it is very good um, because the, the soundtrack is just phenomenal. Is that is that still Carter? Is that Carter? Uh, it is Carter Burwell. Is it? Who would then be nominated for three billboards. Yeah, he picked... Um, or I don't know if he... His score is good, but like the sound... Like the songs they picked are also very good. Um, oh, I don't know if he it's did It's almost the, like a T-Bone Burnett-esque like deep dive into well, kind I, of I, indie I think, psychedelic country. And I, and I, but I think, I think maybe, maybe Carter... I, know, I don't know, but, but like three billboards does a lot of that too. Kind mm-hmm. of like a T-Bone Burnett yeah. kind of like sound to it. The, you know, just the stuff he used to do, like he, that he does, um, yeah, yeah. and 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 where he draws, like the pool of songs he draws from, is a different pool than everybody else in movies draws from. Yeah. Um, and then, like, I think the Sam Rockwell scene, you know, from having seen Mark McDonough's three movies, the Sam Rockwell scene when he's just like, you know, when you kind of find out that he's the killer, and like he watches the flag, like all day, mm-hmm. and he just, you know, that scene is like really great. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's really short. Another scene of stuff burning, and it's just—it's not—it's not like relevant to anything that's happening, except that it kind of explains his character a little better. But like at that point, you don't. Oh, at the end, a- by the end of the movie, you don't even need his character explained at all because he's just—he's you know—you've established he's a psychopath and he just wants. And that's a, that's the thing know. that's that's the thing that like like puts this movie at one on one on my list and like makes it so it makes it into this podcast is the fact that like this motherfucker and mcdonald knows how to create characters i mean yeah i mean you know as much as i am not the biggest fan of three billboards all the characters in that have some level of complexity i mean the fact that we argued about sam rockwell's deputy in in the the film critique industry industry well, the film the you know big people argued, dumb. Yeah. yeah argued about like the, the the values of his redemption arc well he's not redeemed yeah. at all he's gonna kill somebody well, we don't know. <laughs> but, like, but like the entire like like are we talking about a racist potentially being redeemed is interesting because like 
we are bringing up the tenets and the values of a character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, no matter how much his movies succeed or fail, McDonald knows how to craft right complex characters and really kind of undimensional two-dimensional situations yeah i think him and paul thomas anderson are a lot alike in that respect in that like whatever they do it's gonna seem like it's on fire yeah you know what i mean like it's gonna be a creative donald's instance people will be actually on fire yeah and but it'll be just it'll be even if it's subtle like something you know like the master's really subtle you know um there's parts of Seven Psychopaths when people aren't killing each other that are really subtle and quiet but they have this real weird like, like psychic energy yeah. underneath them that you're just kind of like I have to grapple with this mm-hmm. I don't know what this is if this is going to have anything to do with anything that happens after this but I need to sit and like take this in because it's probably going to be very important and if it's not yeah. going to be very important then it's just an amazing image that you really just kind of want to hold on to for as long as you can hold on to it like I don't see any other reason for Tom Waits to be carrying around a white rabbit and a machete except for that the thought of Tom Waits carrying around a white rabbit and a machete is just unbelievable yeah no exactly I would agree I would agree and uh, we'll probably talk more about both of those directors yeah in the future alright well I think that wraps up Episode zero. Anything? Anything else we should talk about? No, we this we are. Let's, at, let's rate. Let's rate these two beers, maybe. Yeah. Um, we had a. So we had the the finger guns and the harpies hex. I mean, we're not going to be doing multiple beers on this podcast. No, we'll just usually. do one beer. Yeah. Uh, finger gun for me. Yeah, finger gun. I agree. It was tasty. It was a tasty sour, and I'm not usually a sour guy, but it was tasty. Yeah, sour. And I have to. I have to give harpies hex one thing. I only had a beer and a half, and I actually kind of feel. Like a little buzz from this uh, well, seven. Oh wait, I've had two. Seven percent. But I had two of them. That's how. Bunk. That's how. That's how much of a punch that had. But yeah, I'd agree with the finger guns. All right. Um, next week we'll be going into episode one hundred. Yep. And actually talking about only one movie. Two movies. One movie a piece. Oh yeah, one movie a piece. So a real episode one. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Have a good good week, everyone. It's pivotal film.